Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before introducing my guest for this episode, I once again want to share an opportunity for real estate professionals from the ages of 22 to 40 to join the community called the Iconic Journey in CRE a membership group whose purpose is to learn about the income-producing real estate industry by connecting with other members, learning from curated content, tours, and live online speakers and events that are created. It's now been in existence for about two months. We have 28 members. We're looking to grow to 100, potentially. To join please write me at john at coenterprises.com and we'll spend about 30 minutes and I can introduce you to the community and the opportunity. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I am so pleased to introduce my guests for today's show, Wendy Feldman Block and her father, David Feldman. So when I reached out to Wendy, whom I've met in industry meetings in the past. She said, why don't you bring my father on? And I'd not heard of her father, David, before, but he, he's been a prominent attorney and leading a law firm in Northern Virginia for over 40 years. And his focus has been on real estate, but primarily not just in practice, but also his own personal investments, which he talks about in the interview. He talks about his background as growing up in Northern Virginia, then going to school in in Washington, GW, both undergrad and law school, coming right back and starting his practice in Northern Virginia at the Fairfax County office, and then started a, a firm after that. He said that he worked really hard and really didn't spend as much time as he would have liked to have with his family, although Wendy certainly picked up on it and knew that she wanted to get into the real estate sector. So she went to school at Emory and then came out, said she wanted to be in business. She decided, well, let's just, instead of going to take the bar, I'm going to go ahead and start my business career as an intern at Studley. Well, 34 years later, she's still there, now with Savills, built a practice with some very good mentors that she talks about, and She's one of the leading office brokers in the city. She has passions in wellness, which she talks about also, and in working through some of the issues post-pandemic that we talk about. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with David Feldman and his daughter, Wendy Feldman Block. David Feldman and Wendy Feldman Block, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. So this is a, my first father-daughter interview I've ever done. So this will be interesting, and I think it'll be fun. And 
Thank you for the idea, Wendy. That was really cool. Going outside my usual routine of questioning is I usually ask about what you're doing today and how to go in your histories. I'd like to start with your history. And I'm going to start with you, David. As you are uh, the elder here, tell us about your origins, youth, and parental influences, if you would. Well, I was born in Leesburg, Virginia, 1939. Uh, my father had a store in Leesburg and uh, lived in Leesburg probably until I was about two. Family moved to Washington and then moved back to Herndon, where my mother opened a store. Okay. And I actually started working for my mother and father in their respective stores. And I can remember... What, what kind of stores were they? They were kind of general merchandise stores, uh, small, I mean, tires, batteries, clothing. They didn't have television in those days. Radios. Were they first-generation Americans or second? Or? Second-generation Americans. Okay. And my father was a uh, hard-driving guy. And I started working for him when I was eight years old on Saturdays. And if he had treated me like everybody else, that would have been fine. But he didn't. He expected so much more from me. You're the oldest? No, I was, I'm the youngest. You're the youngest? Yeah, my, my sister's 11 months older. Okay. Uh-huh. Irish twins. And I remember he had a potbelly stove. That's how they heated the store in King Street in Leesburg. And he used to only stand in front of that potbelly stove. And when I'd move over to get some heat, he'd say, you need to do that bin. Well, he sold bicycle parts, and they had little glass bins, and you had to dust them. And I said, with that, I've already dusted. Dust them again. I mean, just, <laughs> just a really tough guy to, to work for. And then my parents got separated when I was about nine or 10. And uh, my mother made me quit working for my father and start working in her store. But it's a funny little story. When I was six years old, I got a, uh, a paper route delivering Evening Star on Sunday. And of course that was a pretty big thick paper. And I had a little red uh, wagon and the very first day, I had to get up at 5 or 5.30 in the morning, got all the papers in the wagon, and I must have walked about three feet, and the wheel fell off. Oh, no. And I had no idea. <laughs> so I had to go in and wake up my father to help me. That was the last day that I worked for the evening. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, I guess he learned a lesson. I learned a lot. <laughs> and then they didn't get divorced until I was about 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very bitter. Um, and I can remember when they were together, the fighting that would take place. If you got in a car with them, it was just horrendous. And I guess most people would be really heartbroken when their parents separated. But I wasn't heartbroken. I was happy. Because that had to be, life had to be better. So, in any event, I didn't see much of my father during the walk of my life. Mm-hmm. Saw my mother a lot because I lived with her and, excuse me, I worked in her school. So, you had a work ethic from early on. I was driven by the bullwhip. I don't know how much of a work ethic I had, but it was drilled into me. 
And I moved into Washington uh, when I was seven years old. And I went to public school through the Washington public school section. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still worked for my mother on Saturdays because I didn't drive. Actually, she didn't drive. She was in business with her brother who used to pick her up every day and drive her out to Herndon. And so I made a lot of friends, both through, I guess, a, a series of things, high school fraternity, uh, Boy Scouts, dance, uh, dance group. Was this in Virginia or was this? Like this, all, this was all in the district. In D.C., okay. Oh. And then I had a, excuse me, I went to Hebrew school, which was something I hated worse than anything I had ever done in my life. And we had a uh, teacher who was the old school, wrapped him over the knuckles, Ooh. pinch your cheek. I mean, wow. he, he was a mean son of a gun. Almost like the Catholic schools. The Catholic schools, you mean the Jesuits? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> well, I didn't go to them, but I know friends that did. I've interviewed people that have done the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And then, so uh, you had to learn uh, Hebrew, of course. Right. And, and to this day, I can read it a little bit. I never could translate it. I got bar mitzvah. And I said, the day I was bar mitzvah, that was the end of it. And it was until. Uh, Actually, my kids were born when we lived in Herndon, and it's getting forward a lot. And there were three Jewish merchants in Herndon who didn't speak to each other, including my mother didn't speak to the Nachmans, uh, she didn't speak to the Salkies, and, and herself, she did speak to herself. And anyhow, time came where it seemed like they really needed to have a, uh, a temple or synagogue. And a group of six elders met, and by default, I got elected to be president, which was about the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> but I did it for two or three years because it was important, mainly for the children. It wasn't important to me, it wasn't important to my wife either. And uh, Was this in, in Herndon? It, uh, actually, it, it started off in Herndon, but then it moved to Reston very early on, let's say, wrestling got started about 1964. So this was about 1966, and we were over one of the buildings. And uh, it evolved over the years. Now it's called Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation, which is probably one of the bigger temples in Northern Virginia. It's been, it's been very successful. Speaking of wrestling, did you ever know Robert Simon? I met him, but I didn't know him. And I wasn't, I know one of the questions was, was I involved? You know, there were times I wish I were, and there were times I'm glad I didn't, because I remember the days when we got started. Not that I knew that much about land development, because I knew almost zero. But I remember he started Lake Ann, he built the lake, he built the uh, buildings around Lake Ann, and then he decided that he needed to go across what is now the Dulles Access Road mm -hmm. and build single family, mostly single family, detached homes in Hunter's Woods. And what he didn't understand, I guess, because he wasn't really a developer, his family owned, what was it, uh, Carnegie Hall. Yes, in, in New York City. In New York City. Yeah, right. So what he didn't realize, he got to build the roads out there. 
you got to bring the sewer out there, you got to bring the water out there, et cetera, et cetera. And that's basically what Peter Mungers is. At the end of the day, he, he had borrowed $15 million from Gulf Oil, mm-hmm. and then he couldn't pay them back, and Motorola came and mailed Gulf Oil out. So but what you see in Reston today, I think, is it's really phenomenal, just incredible. So when you lived here, it was basically the first community that was ever built then, right? One of the, we, we bought a house, we lived in Herndon first. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I had to move to uh, Virginia to take the bar. And we lived here for six months before we were eligible. And then after I took the bar, we moved to Herndon. And we stayed in Herndon for about six, seven years, and then moved to uh, Hunter's Woods and Reston. But Hunter's Woods was up and running by that time. And I think, I think Simon was long gone. I think it was about 1971 or okay. 73. Mm-hmm. And uh, stayed there for about uh, 10 or 11 years. Like where we lived, et cetera. So, so why did you go to GW? Because I couldn't afford to go anywhere else. I had to pay my own tuition. My mother had bought... GW was a private school, though. So it's now, and, and what I heard read about three years ago, GW was the highest tuition in the country for undergraduates. Well, I'll tell you how high it was. First year, my tuition was $360. Now, you got to go back, yeah. you know, 54 years, how many years it was. Right. But the difference was it was $12 per an hour. And that's oh. all I could afford. I mean, uh, AU was more expensive. Georgetown was more expensive. Oh, sure. I don't know if I could have gotten into Georgetown. But a lot of my friends, most of my friends, were going to GW, so that just made it natural. Went to GW, joined fraternity there, uh-huh. so, so. Mm-hmm. And then just went on to law school there, too, right? I went to law school there, too. I got married at the end of my junior year, which was really people were getting married. Most of my friends got 20 married. years old. I was 21, my wife was 19, and she had just finished her sophomore year. I just as I said I just finished my junior year. And at the time, I not only was going to school full time, both in college and in law school, but I was working in the afternoons for my mother and her. I would I would go to school from 9 to 12 and then drive out to Herndon oh and work until 6 o'clock. Wow. On Saturdays, the store was open until 9 o'clock. And at one time, my mother and I, well, one time, we got into a disagreement over some things, and I quit. And that's when I went to work for Giant Food, which was really one of the best things that ever happened to me. They had a training book. Where in Giant? Where did you work in Giant? On McComb Street. Oh. Store number two. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah it's a tiny store. And uh, most of the people. Frank Saul owned that at an early age. Did he own it? Yes. That's uh, where I worked. Oh, uh, you worked? For, I worked for Frank Saul. Oh, okay. I knew for a movie. I, I never knew that. Yes, so we had uh, the cash register I mentioned. We had a punch. And you had to pull the stuff through. You couldn't, you know, there were no such things as scanners. And the worst part of it, a lot of them were diplomats. 
And well, first of all, even if you weren't a diplomat, there was no tax on food. There was a one or two percent tax on non-food items. So if the customer didn't separate them, you had to do all the separation <laughs> and run them through so you could do the items that were taxed first, then you did the uh, he did the food. And there was one guy who used to come through. He was a diplomat. And he was always nasty. I mean, wait until I get there. I want to see how you win everything up and do it right. And I remember one day he came through. When you have, I've never told you this. No, story. this is great. Here's this guy, the diplomat. And he's in Sweden or somewhere. And anyhow, he comes through. Got his groceries, and there was a box of Kotex. And our manager used to be in an elevated booth. So if, if you didn't know the price of something, because again, you couldn't scan it, you'd ring the buzzer, and you'd look at the guy. I see what That guy never came through my line again. <laughs> Maybe he never came through the store again. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> yeah. But I really enjoyed it. And as I said, what I enjoyed the most was the training program because they really did things right. Nice. It was the customer first, second, third. Is he going? Is he going? I mean, it was, it was wonderful. What they the did. best. They, they taught you how to be yes. a, a, not necessarily a good person, but how to be the right person and how to make sure you didn't insult the customer like I did that one time. <laughs> Izzy didn't tell me to do that. So I stayed there for about a year that my mother told me I had to come back to work for her. And I did. And uh, I worked for her all the way through college and law school. And even after I finished law school, I'd given serious consideration to going into business with her. And thank goodness I didn't. I wound up with a, a man who she knew in Herndon. He was a sole practitioner. And he was, he was a really bright, I've been around a lot of bright lawyers in my life. And he was right at the top. Dexter Roden, who has been my partner for 54 years, it comes out of his mind. He's just incredible. And uh, I've learned a lot from those people. Mike, I did everything. We did whatever came into it. We were doing tax returns. Now, we had no business doing tax returns. We did divorces. We did criminal cases. We did traffic cases. We did personal injury cases. We did combination cases, eminent domain cases. So when you were in law school and you were coming out, you really didn't know what you were going to do, is what you're saying. No idea. No at all. I knew that I really wanted to be a engineer. And I knew I wanted to be with this Mike Martin because I liked him. And uh, mm -hmm. he, he was quite a character, as you said. He was quite a warrior. And I stayed with Mike for about two, two and a half years, made tremendous money. He got me, and I remember, like the first day I was there, I opened this door, and there was a whole bunch of files. I said, Mike, what are those? He says, oh, they're person entry cases. I'm not interested in that. If you want to work on them, you go ahead and work on them. I wasn't even sure I knew what a person entry case was. I started working on them. 
and did extremely well with it. And one of the cases that was in there was a condemnation case. The, uh, you know where Sully Road is? Yes. Okay, well, Sully Road stopped at Route 50. It started mm -hmm. Route 7. The person who knew owned the ground where Sully Road was going to extend so it could further south. And Mike and I wound up buying this property. And we ultimately sold it for a nice penny, uh, probably about three or four years later. And there was a Mike in the meantime that died. And his, his widow was my partner. And I don't know what we were going to do with it. Well, we found out what to do with it. The state came through and they needed to take that acre and a half to finish the interchange. Right. And it was just a, a, just a great day. But, uh, now, Mike was very good to me. His, his wife wasn't. So Dexter came to me and offered me a job. He had just become, or it was just announced, he was going to become the county attorney. County attorney. The first county attorney. He had been the senior Commonwealth attorney. And the Commonwealth Attorney's Office used to do all the criminal and traffic prosecution. And they used to do all the county work. Uh, so the state's county. attorney's office did all the legal work for Fairfax County? No, they did it for the state. The Commonwealth attorneys did it for Fairfax County. Okay, got it. And then they decided they needed to split, split it off. It, it was just too much work uh, to be doing. Well, this county work. was growing quickly. Well, the county was growing. And the guys who were in the Commonwealth attorney's office, they weren't interested in little condemnation cases, easement cases. So they weren't getting done. So they knew that in order to get it done, they had to appoint a county attorney. So they appointed Dexter, and he asked me and two other guys who were the Commonwealth attorney, would I would we come to work for him? Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to work for him because I, I had gotten to know him when he was a prosecutor, and I had cases that I was representing people. Mm -hmm. I thought he was an eminently fair guy. Not that I always got what I wanted, but sometimes I got a pretty good result. And so anyhow, for those years, it was a year and a half that, I, that we were in the attorney's office. And one day he came to me and said, hey, how about you and I going out in private practice? I couldn't have asked for anything better. That's great. Problem was, when we started work for him, I was making a lot of money with my money. My salary was cut by more than half, but I had to get out because Mike was having severe drinking problems. Oh, and and he, he would call me in the morning and say, David, I need you to go down and try this case in Arlington. I said, well, what case? He said, it's a jury trial. I said, oh, I've never tried a jury trial. <laughs> You know, you hadn't even read about the case? I hadn't read about that. I'd seen this guy in the office. Because Mike used to always answer the phone and tell everybody to come in at 10 o'clock Saturday morning. And the office was filled. He was a very prominent lawyer. So anyhow, I go down to Arlington Courthouse. I'm trying to cut that short. And I see this guy. And I said, my name is David Feldman. I work for Mike Morton. And... Uh, I'm here to try the case. He said, well, where's Mike? Mike says, you didn't pay, so you get me. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. So we started trying the case. I never tried one. And I remember 
your um, panel of uh, 24, each side got to strike. So when the prosecutor passed me the, uh, the list, he only struck one. I put it in the he only struck one. We each get to strike four. So I have one, two, three, four. Pass it back to him. He scratched his head and feel so he asked to approach the bench, and the judge was just as nice as he could be. He explained what the problem was, and the judge says, well, Mr. Feldman, Arlington, we strike alternatively. And of course, my mind said, oh, yeah, like it's different in Loudoun County, <laughs> it's different. So anyhow, we try the case, and the bailiff says to me, that jury's only going to be out for 10 minutes. So I figured, this guy is really going to get killed. Jury came back and quit the guy. I never knew why. Never got paid, never cared, and all that. So in any event, that was my experience with him. And then with my, uh, Dexter, I tried a lot of cases, civil cases for the county. We advised all the supervisors. Mm -hmm. And then when we went into private practice, uh, we actually associated with another attorney who had been a delegate in the House of Delegates. And he, he called me one day and said, um, I'd like to talk with you. Mm -hmm. So we went to lunch he said, you know, I'd like you to join me. I'm leaving my firm. And I said, no, I really can't do that because it's off the record. The Dexter and I are leaving the county attorney's office. He said, well, that's just as well. And, um, Anyhow, Dexter and I talked about it. We decided no, but we did share space with him. And what, what the guy did, he fed us more business that first month, month of December, nineteen sixty-eight. I mean, it was like it was like all in the gold mine. He just went out, bought two cars, he bought clothes, and everything else. Well, when you start a new firm, you never know. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't it Farley, Odin, and Feldman? Started off as Odin Feldman. And Guy came to us and said, Look, you know, I think it worked out great that first month. Why don't we form a firm of Farley, Odin, and Feldman? Well, all the business he was doing is we said, Okay. So we did. Then he came to us and said, I know that I told you at the beginning I would not run for public office again. Fred Power, who's running for government, has asked me to be his attorney general. Mm -hmm. And, you know, would you guys agree to it? He says, I don't have the money, but Fred Power has the money. So we agreed to it. So for the five months the guy was running for attorney general, we didn't get any paycheck. It's a good thing we had some money left over from December. So the guy lost actually got in a runoff with Andy Miller, who ultimately won the Attorney General. Guy came back, he was a great lawyer, and uh, we did very well with him. So he was a rainmaker. He, he was a rainmaker. Yeah. He was the kind of guy who would go out and you weren't supposed to solicit business. It's absolutely unethical. <clears throat> I don't know how he did it, but the business that came in when he was back working and not at the beach with his girlfriend knowing that he wasn't going to win. Because he went back to Fred Pollard. He said, Fred, I don't have any money. Fred said, I don't have any money to give you. Yeah, you'll have to do it on your own. But anyhow, we tried together 
at the time, the biggest case, probably in Virginia, where a young fellow had um, dived into a, a backyard pool and he hit his head on the hopper and he became an unquiet preacher. So we tried that case, we settled it, but it was the biggest settlement. And we found out the verdict was even bigger than the settlement. It was, it was quite a thing. But after that, Dexter and I left and uh, went on our own. And uh, okay. we did hire a, uh, a law clerk, stayed with us for many years. And we kind of grew that way. And we would do almost anything, too. We didn't do tax returns anymore, but we did divorce cases. Before, before we dive deeper into, into your practice there, I want to stop and talk about your family life a little bit. It wasn't much of a family. <laughs> well, I'm talking now not about when you were growing up, but raising Lenny. So I was not very much. You weren't. I was. I mean, I was working on Saturdays, Sundays, late at night. So you didn't see her much. I didn't see her much. But in some ways, that was okay. Wendy and I did not get along very well when she was growing up. I have to say, and I've told you this, mm-hmm. you yeah. were a tough cook. Yeah. I mean, a really tough kid. Even as a little girl, real little girl? or uh... I can't remember so much a real little girl, but, but certainly as she got to six, seven, eight, and then her teen years. A mind of her own. Oh, yeah. She was. But it set me on a path. It set me on a path. Yeah, it did. And uh, I had a younger daughter, too. who was two and a half years younger. And she, she was a nice, sweet little kid. No trouble getting along with her. The two of them used to go to war all the time. And I felt when I came home, I was spending my time separating. You were a referee? Yeah, I was the referee. So that's why I became the bad guy. And, um, but anyhow, I regret that I didn't spend more time. But I had to because we had big expenses, little girls like clothes. And her mother used to take them clothes shopping, not to Kmart's, um, but usually to a Saks Fifth Avenue or, or a, to whatever was here at the time. And they got used to clothes. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I got used to having, you know, again, if I had a chance to do it over again, I would do it differently. So even in high school, you didn't have any father-daughter experiences at all or anything like that? Mm-hmm. that you, any father, no father-daughter experiences? I mean, I had some aunts and uncles who uh, I had cousins and I had some relationships with them. But most of my relationships were friends that I met through either uh, the public schools or the various organizations that I joined. But with us, you know, we would go skiing. Our family would ski. He was asking about you know, things that you and I did. Uh, yeah. Well, we went skiing the first time in 1973, I think. And uh, and those were those were fun times. So well, that's good. What do you remember other than being headstrong? What else? What else do you remember about Wendy growing up? I remember that she was bright. Could not if you got in a battle with her, you couldn't win it. At best, you might come out even. Even your best negotiating skills. Even you could best negotiating skills. When it came to Wendy, it was very very difficult. I'm happy to say that has changed over the past 35 or 40 years. 
we've gotten a wonderful relationship. That's great. That's great. So, Wendy, I'm going to shift now to you. Okay. So, what are your earliest memories of growing up? Well, I think my dad set the table nicely in the <laughs> fact that I was born in Herndon, and uh, we moved to Ruston, I think, when I went to second grade, and Ruston was very different. And when I think about kind of how I ended up where I am and what I, what I am, it's a, it's a tribute to my dad, because we spent a lot of time in the car. So, my dad told you he, his, a lot of his friends were in D.C. and then settled in Maryland, and very few of his friends were in Virginia. So we spent so much time in the car. And I remember as a kid, we would drive up and down the road. You couldn't use the Dulles Access Road unless you went out to the airport and turned around. And back then, <laughs> you could. But my dad would say, one day there's going to be a road here. And it's going to go from the airport all the way into D.C. Because when we were there, there was no toll road. There was no 66. There was no town center in the 70s. So Route 7 was the... You would go 7. You could go Lawyers Road to Vienna but only if it didn't rain because there wasn't a bridge. And if it rained, I mean, that, or, or you had a forge. Yeah. I mean, that's, so that's what we, we grew up with. And so we had a lot of time doing that. And my dad would also point out, cause he would talk about his cases that there was going to be buildings up and down the toll road. I, we were chatting about in preparation for these. He goes, how come I didn't buy more of that land? Because I mean, when you look at what's gone on here, it really is amazing. And I was at the second graduating class from South Lakes. When we moved here, there was no middle school and there was no high school. And they did build the high school when I started. And it was a great, it was actually a really great place to grow up. We had a, a lot of latitude. It was one of those times, like, as long as you were home by dark, no one knew where you were or really cared. And so it was, it was sort of benign neglect, which my children didn't get. You know, we were definitely much more helicopter parents, I think, just because the world is different. So, but growing up in Reston was great. And I have, you know, vivid memories, as my dad said, that he worked all the time and he was, he, there was truth in it, but he also did it to build his practice. And he, he demonstrated a work ethic to me. And that was always very prevalent. And when I think about sort of how I look at the world, he influenced that immensely in the sense of seeing right and wrong. Not that many people really get second chances. I don't know. I try to be a little bit more open-minded, but in general, if you mess, screw me over, that's it. I got a very long memory. But doing the right thing and owning up to your mistakes was something that was ingrained from a young age. And so my dad had this really hard work ethic and my mother, who is um, alive and wonderful, was the complete opposite. She was the one that exposed us to culture and, and theater and ballet. And she grew up in Manhattan. And I always joke that any sophistication I have comes from my mother. But I always knew that I was more interested in doing something on the business front, what that would be. It kind of was interesting to hear my dad's stories today because I would have thought it was much more purposeful and strategic about how he planned his law career. And, and mine, mine, mine isn't either as I get through it. But I will say that I've had the influence of very strong women in my life. And his mother, who was not educated, didn't, uh, she, she, grad, she graduated high school no college degree, ran this business that ultimately converted from a thrifty shop that sold tires to a high-end furniture store in Herndon in the 60s Did and 70s. Oh, yeah. Oh, I spent a lot of time in the furniture store. A lot. Well, they were dropped off at my mother's store. Yeah, we were constantly dropped off there. And actually, when I went to Herndon Intermediate, it was like three blocks from her store, which is next to the fire station. I think it's a type Did one. Did you work there at one point? Of course, something? everybody worked there. We all, we all did. And then my mother's mother, 
went to Columbia Dental School in the 20s, and she and my grandfather were orthodontists, probably some of the first orthodontists, and she was one of the first women uh, dentists or orthodontists. So I had these like really strong women that were great, great role models for me. And what did your mom do? So she was not a stay-at-home mom. She had a degree in counseling, and she, for many years, worked at juvenile domestic court in Fairfax with problem families and was a family therapist for them. She, at different periods of time, did interior design. She did event planning. She she really, like my grandmother, her mother was a Renaissance woman. She could, my parents entertained a lot. She could cook like nobody's business. And so we kind of grew up exposed to all of that. But we, again, we had a lot of latitude. We were kind of unchaperoned, which is, it's, it's fortunate that we turned out as well as we did. <laughs> So you went on to Emory University. Why? Well, interestingly, my dad's partner and cousin, Jimmy Pittleman, his wife had suggested to me, because I was only looking at schools in, the, in New England, that really hadn't given a lot of thought. But I kind of seemed, I had spent a summer up at Wellesley, and I loved New England. I thought it was just lovely, and, and it would get cold, and I could ski, and I looked at all schools up there. Did you want to get away from home at the time? Is that kind of I was, we, we, were, we were kids that always went away in the summer. We, were, we went uh-huh. to camp. And a lot of our okay. friends in Northern Virginia did not go to camp. We went to YMCA camps. Ultimately, we tried a few. But we ended up in, in uh, North Carolina at Seafair. And I was never afraid to go away. Neither of us was. We were always you know, pretty independent. Sure. But she, this cousin said, you should look at Emory. And it was the only Southern school I looked at. And I went down there and I fell in love with it. Just this beautiful bucolic campus, marble-clad buildings. The people were nice. I loved Atlanta. And I was shocked that I got in. I'm somebody who considers themselves to be very street smart, but not book smart. I didn't have good SATs. I didn't have good grades. But I think my demographic worked to my advantage that there weren't very many people, if any, applying from South Lakes to Emory. And I got in. And I loved it. And I didn't really know what I wanted to study, but I thought... I wanted to maybe go to law school. When I was in high school, I was on the debate team. And my dad mentioned, you know, he didn't usually lose arguments with me. And so <laughs> I thought that was a path I was going on and that I thought economics was a, was a good way. Although I, I did make a mistake and that was, I chose macroeconomics versus micro because macro didn't have any papers. And I didn't really like to write a lot, which was a, which was a really bad mistake. And it, it came to catch up, which I'll talk about later. I joined the pre-law society there. I started to get more and more engaged, which has been a pattern in my life. I became president of the pre-law society. I was active at doing student tours. I, I joined a sorority and I was the ombudsman. I sort of kind of filled that role. Mm-hmm. But I fell in love with art history. And I had a professor, and I think we all can reflect in our lives on a professor sure. that makes a difference. And Professor Howell made art come to life. And I fell so in love with it that in my junior year, very impromptu, I went and studied art history in Florence. And I came back for my senior year and didn't feel like taking the LSATs. I thought, I'll wait a year and I'll go work for a year in real estate. And I was really naive about what that, well, I thought my dad hasn't really talked about a lot, but he ended up doing a lot of real estate law. And so I I started to see that. And so that was kind of the path that I, I started to be thinking would be a good way station for a period. Mm-hmm. Let me just mention something here about a lady was talking to me about going into real estate. And she said, What do you think? And I said, um, I think we ought to start off in residential. It's much, much easier. And basically, she, she may not have used the word pig. She did call me a chauvinist. <laughs> and I thought she was making a terrible mistake 
starting off, not necessarily study or anything else, commercial. but commercial is a very different world. And, uh, very she, male. She has made a tremendous success of, course. of what she's done. Yeah, so I came out with that, where I, and I know that my dad adored his daughters, but there was never this push to go off and be whatever you want, kind of the way that, that I have raised my, my own children with my husband. And so that was kind of what I decided I thought I would do for a year, then take the LSATs and then go to law school and work with my dad, just assumed that they would accept me and law school. And then my dad would say, yes, we don't have a nepotism rule. And I just assumed that's what I'd do. So why not residential? Well, it was interesting. And I, and residential is amazing, but I thought of not residential, like multifamily. I thought about residential agents and I felt that I wanted something that felt like a, I don't mean to insinuate that residential real estate agents aren't professional, but I wanted more of an office environment. I think that's really what it came down to. I didn't really know the difference, but I just knew intuitively Mm -hmm. that I wanted one more than the other. It's funny. uh, My mother was a residential my parents bought homes and rented them. And I, I gave some thought to that as well. I, I knew I wanted to do something in real estate. Mm-hmm. But my father was a retailer. And I saw retail real estate and I said, this is interesting. So income producing real estate. So I knew that I wanted to study that. Mm-hmm. So it's funny how those things oh, yeah. transpired. I want to go back to you, David. Your resume, your bio talks that you were in criminal and civil law, as you talked about. So, how did you get into the into the res- into the real estate game? How did that how did that evolve? Well, when I was about seventeen, there was a group of us, maybe five, decided we were going to form an investment club, and uh, we did. And there was an opportunity in Herndon to buy three acres. It came, long and short of it, it came from the guy I was going to be working for. It was his brother-in-law that was the broker. So we bought this piece of property. At 17? At 17? 17, maybe 18. I think we were all in high school at the time. Paid $2,000, $3,000 for it. And on top of that, what turns out, that it was his wife, probably. He had never told us that. And that was a lesson. Was this farmland or what, what was no, it? No, it farmland. Turned out ultimately to be part of their golf course. And then this group started getting into the stock market. I didn't know anything about the stock market. And there was a stock called U.S. Photo Supply. We bought a bunch, whatever we could, all we could, of U.S. photos. And it zoomed up so high. Let's say we bought it at $2 a share, it went up to $100 a share. Oh my goodness. And I didn't know what you do with it. So, oh, if it went to 100 it's going to go higher. Next thing we knew, the U.S. photo supply was down a ton. And, uh, but anyhow, we were able to sell off the uh, ground and, and we did very well. And it showed me a lesson that. You, know, you can work in a store, you can be a retailer, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor. There's so many, there are only so many hours that you have in a day. And how can you make money beyond that? And it just occurred to me, one of the ways you can do it, and it's just like we did in Herndon, is get involved in real estate. 
I wasn't thinking about developing a new real estate. I was thinking about owning it, selling it, and flipping it. Right. And then we started buying some properties. All were undeveloped. And ultimately, I guess we built four shopping centers, two or three office buildings, and just, you know, most of them were good. When was this now? It started probably in the early 70s. And Dexter and I decided the thing to do is to go out and buy old houses in Fairfax County and rent them out to make sure they had loans that were assumable. So this was unrelated to your legal practice? Totally unrelated to the legal practice. Interesting. And, uh, Interesting. So at one point, we must have had eight or nine uh, homes that were rented. And we had a $200,000 line of credit at a bank that I dealt with. And all of a sudden, the Young Kippur War in October of 1973 came about. And when that came about, the economy totally crashed. We were just so lucky to get out of the line to be able to sell those houses real quick, to be able to pay off that debt. And that was a real great... That was the oil crisis. Yeah, the embargo. Terrible, terrible time. And I've had maybe four or five of those over my career. And I always say I learned something from everyone. I learned sure. from that one, don't go out and buy a bunch of houses and rent them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't go out and get yourself highly leveraged. Uh, you know, you really need to learn from your mistakes. So I made four or five mistakes over the years. And in 1998, came, we had gotten the shop, we got this piece of ground at a trade-off for a shopping center we had participated in. And uh, we decided to build a shopping center. And I remember a client friend said, I said, well, I don't want to be personal one. He said, man, this is a slam dunk deal. You can't possibly lose. And I said, man, I don't know about that. So he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will personally, my wife and I will personally guarantee the loan because any construction loans, or hip squeaks like us who didn't have much, they wanted your personal guarantee. Mm-hmm. Don't know it meant a whole lot, but they wanted they wanted you on the lot. So about a week later, this guy comes back to us and said, well, let's kind of get this thing moving. And I said to him, let me ask you a question. You said this is a slam dunk and you can't lose. Why do you want 50% of this deal? He said, you're 100% right. You are go ahead and sign, and I'm telling you, you can't possibly lose. Um, that was the last time I personally signed. We didn't lose, and we built a really nice shopping center that has been just kind of cold. So, did you have a developer partner to uh, do that, or somebody? No. Did you build it yourselves? We had it uh, constructed by this guy's construction company. He was a developer at a construction company and a management company. Did he so, lease it? Uh, and he did the leasing for it. And yeah. our big lease was, was Borders. Who was your partner? Uh, who was uh, the. Dexter Oden and Jim Bill were my partners in the. But I mean, who was your construction partner? 
who was the one that did it? It was Unilisk. Unilisk, okay, sure. And uh, uh, in any event, uh, I've used a management company all along. We had some, some tremendous uh, people who were managing the property. Because I used to manage our properties ourselves. Uh, our first office building, first little shopping center. Sure. And I decided I can't do that in practice at all. So uh, finally, we just got management companies to do it. Yeah. And uh, we, uh, we were able to lease up the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it was great until quarters got in trouble. Who's the fellow at UNOS that is the principal there? It's, uh, He's been eminently successful. A lot of shopping centers, a lot of stuff down in Maryfield. Yes. I financed a, an office building actually in Maryfield. I think that he was a sponsor or oh, a co sponsor. You were, yes. When I went I was actually like Mason, so of so oh. the company after that. Mm -hmm. Actually, Jimmy Perry was with Mason for years ago. Do you know Jimmy? No. We were in the mortgage banking division of both at the time. So. Well, I can tell you about some of the other disasters. In 1988, uh, we were in a shopping center with a client, Kmart, and a dark drug. He built the dark drug right next to the Kmart. I didn't know much, but we were a little bit about retail. I said, why don't you put it there? You have 25 acres, put the dark drug in the back. Well, we got in a disagreement. At the end of the day, uh, we split up and we wound up getting a freestanding parcel on the front on Elgin Street. And so uh, we built that. We had another contractor. Same time, we were building an office building for ourselves and other people in, uh, uh, on Jones Street in Fairfax. And we got construction loans from uh, uh, National Bank of Washington, maybe National, uh, Fairfax National Bank. And this was 1979, another crash came. And when it came time to convert from construction loan to permanent loan, companies like Massachusetts Mutual, which had the permanent takeout on our uh, office building, they couldn't close. They didn't have the money. And there we are. Well, interest rates went through the roof. Well, interest the prime was 21 and a half. I know. We were one and a half of the That's why I started the business. So we were 23% yeah. on both of the shopping oh, 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 oh. We didn't know what we were going to do. Finally, the economy turned around enough for match mutual could close and all uh, life insurance could close on the small shopping Wow. Center. And that small shopping center has been just a piece of gold. We, we've had that down for 41 years. Wow. We had the office building for about probably 35 years. And finally, the crash in 2008 9 yeah. took care of that. So we were able to get out from underneath that. So, learn some lessons. So, with your dad's success in in the retail, why didn't you kind of jump into that part of the business with, with him? You know, it's interesting. I had never given it any thought. I just thought development. For some reason, I thought development without really understanding what it was. 
So I started to think I would get a job in that. And a friend of mine had gone to a board of trade dinner and met somebody who worked at the Oliver T car company. And she knew I was thinking of getting into real estate and connected me with her. And she said, we're not hiring, but there's a guy named Adam Singer at mm-hmm. Sat- what was then Julian J. Studley, who was looking for a researcher. And research back then in 1987, I'm not going to tell you all the year I was born. But How long was Studley uh, around at that point? It was founded in 1954 and Peter Spire opened D.C. I think he had opened it Early either in the 80s? late... Oh, no, no. It was in the 70s. 70s? Okay. Yeah, I think he came in from New York to do that. And so before I knew it, I interviewed with him. I interviewed with Steve Goldstein and I was hired. I didn't understand what Did the difference... What you were going to be I had doing? no idea. I, I didn't know anything about it and that I didn't understand the difference between being with a tenant rep firm versus a, a firm that did right. landlord work. I wasn't purposeful and strategic. And I know, particularly as a woman, I'm not supposed to say I was lucky, but I was lucky. I had no idea. Now, I wouldn't have been able to stay there if I didn't figure out a path, but I was... So it was very you So um, I was supposed to do research for a year and then I could move to brokerage. And within six months, a woman named Julie Schulke, she was then Julie McCarthy Schulke, brought me to come work with her. And she became part of Peter Spire's team called National Accounts Group. And it was the highest profile group within the company. A gentleman named Scott Panic, Tom Fulcher, and then ultimately Bill Quimby. We were doing large complex projects in DC and and then in second and third tier markets. And at the time, Peter was such a legend. Nobody did complex law firm deals that would trigger lead tenant deals, oftentimes with equity plays, than Peter. And Julie was with Peter and all that, and Julie brought me along. And so I was incredibly fortunate to have a mentor, although I worked with each of them in different capacities. And we were a team for about six years and traveled all over the country. And I I look back and laugh because when I did research and we started in 87, I really date myself here. We didn't have computers. We didn't have CoStar. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't even have voicemail. So did you have Black Sky? We had Black Sky, but actually Black, Black Sky, it would come out every, I think it came out initially twice a year or, and or quarterly, but it was out of print as soon as it was printed. But then what the developers would do is they would send a packet of all of their listings every two months. And then if somebody had a requirement, they would come to me and say, I, I, I need... 5,000 feet. And I would go through all the packets and then I would have to call all the brokers. You want to talk about inefficiency. Andy Florence did an amazing job because it was so inefficient and it wasn't like they would call me back. But it, it, I, I think one of the things that I found most exciting about the industry, which I kind of fell into, was it was dynamic. It was fun. It was young. There were all these young people in it. And once I got to meet them and they got to know me, people would start to call back. So did you ever do traditional canvassing where you actually have to go office to office? And- no, we would just go and look at the building roster, go floor, floor by floor. I never was actually very good at doing cold calls. I've been fortunate in other ways of, of leveraging connections. But, but Studley, which was Julian J. Studley then, was an amazing place to work. And after, after six years, our team kind of splintered and then Julie and I went off on our own with Bill Quinby and ultimately Vernon Narr. And then we added in Parker Lang and Tim Foley and ultimately David Cornbrook. This was after John, uh, John Kyle had left. Yes, after John Kyle had left. And so then we okay. teamed up with them. And when you think about it, I fell in love with how entrepreneurial the business was. 
This was not nine to five. I was very quickly 100% commission and I could take vacation, but I worked hard and I learned a lot. And as I said earlier, I'm book smart, but I wasn't, I mean, I'm street smart, but I wasn't as book smart. So it took me a while to figure it out. But once I did, I really became really good at the market piece. So I would be involved in projects from identification of the, of the opportunity to pitching it to when we were hired. And to me, the best example was we had an opportunity for Bristol Myers Squibb. We learned that they were looking for 600,000 feet to do build a suit in Princeton. So I was dispatched. I would go up there for a week. I would learn the lay of the land. I would meet with economic development. I would get maps. I would learn how to say the names of the different towns so you wouldn't look like a carpetbagger. I would go to the pitch. And then when we were hired, I would come back and do the real shoe leather of identification of what plots, know who the developers were, understand what the zoning was. And for somebody in their early 20s, that was really a lot of fun. We traveled all over the country doing so things. So you started in 87, and then we had 89 and 90 come. Right. So tell me what happened with your practice at that point. I think for us, we were more fortunate than most because we had some projects underway that still went forward and closed, and that we were on the tenant rep side. Including our office. Yeah, no, I didn't. On Street. Oh yeah, I didn't do that lease for you. Didn't do that? No, I just did the I did the later restructures. You did it with somebody else, but I took care of that after I started. But the uh, the market we could go into other markets. So we because we were already working in second and third tier cities, we were able to weather that storm. And you know, I mentioned teaming. I worked with some of the brightest people in the industry, and they were always able to pivot. I always joke. So Bill Quinby, who I've worked with my entire career, and I went with him out in Virginia in 2011 to help rebuild our office out there. Every time Bill would have a new idea and pivot to something new, by the time I understood it, he'd already moved on. But he just always was extraordinarily entrepreneurial about that. But we did manage to get through it. We didn't have to have any layoffs. And we continue to um, nurture our relationships because the law firms were still doing deals. And that was, that was really a big part of Peter and Julie's business was doing a lot of the law firm work. Yeah, it's interesting. Attorneys didn't struggle as much either because they went, they shifted basically. And we'll talk about that from doing P&L, P&S agreements and deals to workouts and, you know, negotiating uh, bankruptcies and things like that, I imagine. Is that... Is that true, David? Yeah, actually, uh, during that time, own workouts. We also had clients using workouts, so we, we, we felt it in our heart their problems and were able to work through most of theirs and most of their own at the same time. So I've interviewed both John Peterson and, and Bob Kettler. Bob, of course, was a major landowner in Northern Virginia in the, in the late 80s. In the early 90s, all of a sudden, everything went bam. So what was, what was your experience in the early 90s? Same thing. We, we had bought into a 108-wheel piece of ground on Sully Road, right across from the airport. It's called Gate 4, which is the main truck entrance into it. And we had owned that for maybe seven or eight years. Thought it real cheap. And we had a loan on And times were really tough. And the bank said, you know, you either got to give it back or you got to restructure this. So we worked it out where uh, the bank agreed to reduce the interest rate to interest only. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't bad. 
And the guy who was kind of the, the lead charge, I don't know if you knew Forbes or not, but Forbes was an attorney, but also kind of a land guy. Forbes really wanted to get out of it because there was some personal liability. And uh, I was the only one that was pushing to stay in it. And finally, I woke up one morning. I don't know what happened to me. I said, in the hell am I thinking about? I mean, I can hardly keep the other things afloat. How am I going to pay my portion of that 6% that you know, the bank was going to charge? So I called Ford and I said, Ford, I'm ready to go. Let's give it back. And we gave it back. And in several years, I would drive past there and nothing was going on. And I realized that would have been a horrible, horrible mistake. Now you drive past it and you see a lot of buildings that are on the but this this is nineteen this is twenty twenty one. That was nineteen ninety one. Ninety one. We're talking thirty years ago. So right. You gotta have a certain amount of luck. You know, maybe a little bit of smartness, but luck plays a big role in this whole thing. And it's knowing when to get in, when to stay in, and when to get out. Mm -hmm. Those were the examples I had of when to get out. And since that 1998, we decided we were going to go ahead and be personally liable in the construction room for the shopping center. I made a vow. I said, I will never personally sign a loan again. I've kept my words for mm -hmm. 23 years. That's great. I mean, I think you just have to get to the point in your life mm -hmm. where you know, love practice and law, but you say, well, have you got enough at a certain point and you stop being, you know, going out and going out and living? And I, I won't go out and living. So since you were an owner of property in addition to a lawyer, did you ever have the thinking, why don't I just start doing deals and not practice law? I mean, why did you want to keep practicing law and do real estate at the same time? I'm well, I can, I can make a decent living practicing law. Okay, that um, paid the bills basically. It paid the bills, and it helped to fund some of these investments. Got it. And I, I guess I didn't have enough confidence in myself that I could go out and recreate what we had already created. Like, mm -hmm. You know, the shopping center on Route 7, right. the little one in Herndon, and we did another one in Herndon. And, uh, you know, and I, I like retail, and I think that's because I've grown up in the yeah. I mean, But there's no necessarily a direct correlation between growing up in retail and having retail shopping. So that's true. That's true. Kind of things. But, so tell me how you grew up, grew your law firm, you, you and your partner. We, uh, we start off with the two of us. Yeah. We had one uh, associate we hired out of law school. And then in 1974, Jenny Pitt in the IRS, he had been with Leg Mason, and he was a tax accountant. He had been with Captain Drysdale, which was then, and probably still is, the premier tax law firm in the country, and certainly around here. And we asked him if he'd like to join the firm. She'd be great to have a tax lawyer. And he did in December of 1974. Well, uh, turns out there wasn't that much tax business. But there's a lot of business business. And, and Jimmy really 
created a lot of business and did some great work and brought in some wonderful clients, even though they weren't related to the tax side of things. I mean, we brought in people over the years who could do tax stuff, but we had a lot of business lawyers. Uh, we had probably half the firm of litigators, uh, and we do litigation all over all kinds of, most of it's Virginia, Maryland, the district. We do uh, uh, a government contract work. The fellow came from one of the big firms, senior guy, man, he'd bring a tremendous book of business and a terrific guy. So that's how we built it over the years. It evolves. It, it, it does evolve. And uh, a lot of trust and state work, wills, again, a little bit of everything. So why do you love real estate law? Why real estate law and not other types of law? I think that it's challenging. It's not anything real estate law. That's easy. It's not easy. There's a lot of complicated things in real estate. And I remember in law school, a professor was, uh, was, had had a stroke. And he was trying to teach us the rule against perpetuities. And I mean, that professor, if, if you answer him right, as crippled as he was, he would rise up out of that chair and <laughs> shoot your butt out like you never believed. But the, the real estate law is, is really fascinating. There's a lot to it. And it's evolving. It's continuing to so do you like the transactional side, or do you like the land use side, or what part of the law do you I like? Start, I liked land use for a while, and we had some pretty successful rezonings. What I didn't like that land use law is he had to deal with politicians. Of course. I didn't like that at all. And I remember the very first case that Dexter and I had, we actually owned a piece of property, we had a contract, and it was a board meeting. They were voting on this piece of property. And the night before, one of the supervisors who came over to that, our office that night, and he laid out exactly what we needed to do to get this piece rezoned the next night. We did exactly what he said. And the time came for a vote. I didn't realize they now had new lights that they light up, either green or red. Next thing I knew, they said all the lights were red. Even the supervisor who was down on the ground helping us voted against it. I said, I, I just can't, I can't deal with that. I mean, I've done some since, in fact, the, Did he look at you at the end of that meeting when, when no, he presented things no. and said... And he never said a damn thing. How about a little contribution? Well, that's he, he, what, you mean after the, and I know you would do that. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I never would have thought in a million years he would have been that kind of guy. I mean, you know, abstaining or something like that will come to us beforehand and say, guys, I can't bring this on. I'm sorry. I'm not going to vote for it, but I can't. I won't vote against it. And I said, Politicians are a special breed of people. And I'm not saying I dislike all of them, but there's a whole bunch of them I don't like. Understood. So, let's shift over back to Wendy again. See, I'm going to ask this for both of you. 
This question for Olivia. Negotiation is a key element in both real estate law and business. What tactics have you learned in quality and quality negotiations? How has this set you apart from others in your career? I'll start with you, David. You need to keep your cards very close to your chest and don't lay everything out on the table. Although I do believe in being totally honest. You mentioned something about when the kids were growing up. We were extremely friendly with another family that had two or three girls. And I remember one day we went to the movies. These kids were, I think they were all 12 or maybe one was under. And the other family told the ticket taker that uh, the kids were all under 12. And I got up and my kids were 12 and older. And I just thought that was a lesson the kids had to learn that you may not like the rules that somebody else makes, but when you're in their place, you need to comply with their rules. Because otherwise, you're stealing the rules. A very simple thing, but... Interesting lesson. And I, I think that you need to, you need to talk to your clients about the need for honesty. Uh, and when you say something, when you don't, as I said, I had a lot of clients who were in deep trouble, either going into Chapter 11 or already in Chapter 11, and we had to find a way to work things out, but we had to do it the right way and not the wrong way. And so that's the lesson that I learned. Wendy? You know, it's interesting. When I think about negotiations, I do often think that I wish that my dad had talked to me, because I, I didn't think about it, like there wasn't a class in negotiations that I had in college. I had no idea. And I do think some of it, and not all, but is gender-based. And I wasn't raised to understand certain aspects of the art of negotiation. And I read a great book that was called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women recently. We did a book club of women in my company. And it talked about the different ways that men and women in general approach things and how men are socialized in certain ways that I think plays out for negotiations. And so one of your questions, which I guess I will address within this in terms of negotiations is, do I remember kind of like how I learned or a painful story? Well, sometimes when you have something happen, that's really painful, you never forget. And I was working closely with Bill Quinby. We had won a competition for the University of California that was opening a location in DC. They had a little ad in the paper and I was an information person. I came to them and we went after it and we got hired. And they were looking to open more classrooms and down the road ended up buying a site on Rhode Island at 16th where they built a building for students, for administrative offices and classrooms. Like it was 100,000 feet. It was a build a suit. For it was that. a build a suit ultimately, but we had many years where we did leases. And so we were in our first lease negotiation. When I think about how Julie Shulke mentored me versus Bill, Julie was very hands-on and hand-holding and preparing me, didn't want me to fall on my face. Bill, you just figured it out and learned. So we were in, I, I, I won't ever forget what the room looked like, with a leasing agent. And we were talking about, okay, well, if we give you this, you give us that. And I looked at him, I said, well, one has nothing to do with the other. And the guy looked at me, I was 23 years old. And like, he had his aha moment, like, she has no idea what she's talking about. And Bill just kind of let me learn. And I, I actually, while I think there's merit in that, I never forgot it. And I, I've learned a lot about negotiation since. And when I mentored younger people, 
my style is a little bit different because I want them to understand what they should be thinking about or whether it's books or things like that. But to me, at the end of the day, the most important thing about negotiation is understanding in my end of the business what, what matters to the other side. Because we could sit there and we can be really hard charging, but if we never get the deal done, we don't win. Or if we negotiate so hard that at the end of the day, that the owner is so unhappy, I'm leaving and they're going to have a long-term relationship. So we need to figure out a way to come to some meeting of the minds. And so I want it to push it pretty far. I don't want to push it so far that it can't be done. So it means preparation. It means understanding what's been done in the building, what's been what's been done in the marketplace. Of course, in today's market, all bets are off. We don't even know what the market is anymore because of what's going on with COVID, which is a whole, you know, we could talk about that for hours in terms of being in a period of discovery. But so from a negotiation standpoint, I think that that's really important. And the other thing, and I, and I really credit my dad for this, is the most important thing you have is your word. And I impart this, I, I mentor a lot of people. It's actually one of my big passions, both internally within my company and then just within the industry in general. I always will make time to share people, you know, kind of my thoughts or hear what they're, what they're grappling with is if I give someone my word that I, I don't back from it. And so when I am at a point with a client and we're um, down to two buildings and they say, I want to go to that one. And I won't go to the building and say, if you do X, Y, and Z, it's yours, unless I know that they're going to back me up because I'm putting my reputation on the line. And so to me, that's part of that negotiation and it's, it's really important. And so I have this discussion with my clients all the time. Now, there are occasions where a client may change their mind, but I make it very clear that I'm not going to proceed with this unless I have their backing. I mean, I can't have them sign something in writing that they pledge they won't change it, but they rarely do. So did you go to school at all other than the school of hard knocks? I did not that? go to school anything but hard knocks. I ended up not even thinking then after a year at Studley of going to law school or going to get a master's because I basically got an MBA on the job. I learned about marketing and finance, although I, I was more market focused than finance. I learned about the art of selling, about collaboration. It all came back to teams because everything I did was about teams. And while I spent the last eight years more on my own, which actually coincided with the most successful period in my career where I made Studley's top producer trip, which I hadn't made before because I was on a different path. I was more focused on raising my children. And Charles Sandberg socialized the whole concept and lean in that it's not always a ladder. It's like a jungle gym. And for me, I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of is that I've been able to survive and grow, but at different periods. And when I woke up and my kids were in middle school and gone early that I could re-engage, but I'm back to a team. And I, I missed having a real set team. I've teamed up with this Ken Biberai who does these coffee talks and David Cornbrooks, who'd been with my prior team, who's one of the most brilliant analytic minds I've ever met. And the mm -hmm. three of us took a woman who just completed a junior broker program to join us, Danielle Ferrari. And I just get more energy from that. So it was a school of hard knocks. I never got a master's or an MBA. And I know that if I had to think back to my 25-year-old self, what would I tell them? I would say, make sure you have a good grounding in finance, marketing, and accounting. Three things that I never did. I mean, I, I did take an accounting class at Georgetown one summer, and I did take a writing class. And it comes back to an earlier story because my writing skills were more art history, which I was good at, didn't have to do it for economics. And Scott Panic, who was part of that original National Accounts Group, came to me one day and he said, your writing's awful. 
if your writing doesn't improve, you're out of here. And I knew intuitively that I didn't have time to go take a long class. And so I called Georgetown University. I was resourceful, even young, and, and called the business school and asked if there was a professor that might be willing to tutor me. How old were you at the time? Oh, 23, oh, 24. Oh, really, right, right out front. Okay. So I called this woman, and, it's, and she was in the business school. Her name is, was Dale Smith. Now it's Dale Bell, and we're still friends to this day. <laughs> and she just gave me a few key things that helped me with my writing style. And I'm a very conversational writer, and I credit that with so much of my success. I'm still not like the best, like big strategy. I'm good at implementing, but she helped me so much, and so... I saved myself. Wendy has been a great mentor. She, her first year after college, she joined the Women's Center, and then you became a leader a couple years later. Oh, that was Iona Senior Services. Iona. Yeah. So I just got involved in the community and really drew a lot of energy from being around people and helping others. That's great. You're great. That's important to in general, but obviously in the brokerage industry, who you know is really important, especially with tenant. If you're in the tenant business, you got to know a wide swath of people to mm-hmm. really serve. Yes. It'll help. So let's let's move into the real estate markets now. And we talked about you a little bit about the pandemic and how yes. its impact. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, as you say, uncertainty right now in the office sector. Yes. I interviewed a lot of office developers and people and you know we ask we talk about you know flexible office space for tenants today and and are people willing to go long and why would they go long today on a lease today and are they condensing their space? How are they using their space? How is that how are they bringing ten, their their employees back to the office? Why would they come back? What are the things that bring tenants back to the office today? Why is it different than it was before the pandemic? So all these questions, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll stop there and let you kind of expound a little bit. So we are in a period, I I would be 35 years, not just in the industry, but at at Savills, Uh, same phone number the entire time, which which is sort of an anomaly, except at my company, we have a lot of longevity. I've never seen anything like this. And I don't think this is just a a period of inflection. This is a transformation of how we work. But it's not all bad. And I am an optimistic person, but I do see opportunities. So to answer multiple of your questions, do I think that people are um, going to do long-term leases? They are, but not as much. People are looking for different sorts of space. So if if they have an event with a lease coming up, it creates an opportunity. So people are doing things. But they're trying to figure out what this post-COVID world, if I may even say that there is such a thing, is going to look like. I say, is it post? Because we're not fully through it. And if you could have imagined, any of us could have imagined we'd be out of our offices at some capacity for, for possibly two years, which is what we're heading towards, nobody would have believed you. But from situations like this creates opportunity. And before COVID, one of my passions was the role of wellness in the workplace. And I am a firm believer that that, amongst other things, will play a role in getting people to go back. What it will look like remains to be seen. And I'm very comfortable saying I don't fully know because we're in a period of discovery. I can send out an RFP, but until I get the responses, 
I'm not really sure where it's going to be. Is the definition of wellness in the office different in 2019 than it is in 2021? Yes. In part, wellness certifications, pre-COVID did look at air quality, but the focus on air quality is front and center now. And one of the things, I did the first lease in the world to achieve well and lead platinum. It was a small deal, but it was a transformative transaction for me because I had to learn about it and nobody knew what it was. And what we found is that the marketplace didn't really care. I actually kind of went on my own just because I know so many people I would talk with, with JBG and at the time Vernado and all these companies to ask what they were thinking about doing about wellness, because I felt it was going to be a critical tool for them to keep tenants, bring in new tenants, and then for the tenants themselves for recruitment and retention. And now it's more important than ever because I think it's going to be a tool to help companies, if it's communicated right, bring them back. What are the landlords doing? And so you start to see the well health safety seal or you see fit well bioresponse. And what do those mean? People still don't fully get it. But I've been really working hard on educating people about that and basically what's it about and why it matters, which is sort of what my mantra is. What about another uh, trend that I've been noticing? And that is what I call the uh, hotelization of office and residential property. So in essence, hospitality Mm -hmm. coming into the industry even more so than ever before. So it is definitely influencing how things work. During the dark days of COVID, we'd seen, before COVID hit, we saw the amenitization of office buildings, particularly downtown. Literally, everyone was trying to outdo each other. It wasn't enough that you had a fitness facility in the building. It needed to be above grade and with glass. And it needed not just have a conference center, but maybe be part of a roof. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then COVID hit, and we weren't sure what people would want. It's become actually one of the most important variables. I'm doing a lease right now in Tyson's for a law firm, and they are choosing a building in part because of the unbelievable amenities that that building has. And people want that hospitality feel. They want different spaces that they can go to outside of their office because they want to collaborate in different ways. And I'm a firm believer that while people, when they're surveyed, and we can survey them all day, and guess what? Every survey that's been done over the last 18 months, you know, the results are changing at all times. We stopped asking people as much what they want, but how they work so we can influence it. Those studies I sent. Yes. And the, the reality is I'm a firm believer that as people start to go back, because a lot haven't gone back. The real estate people have because we're role models, but a lot of the law firms, it's, it's kind of optional. Corporations, a lot of them have pushed it to, to basically to January. Tech firms may Tech not firms. even come back at all. But when they start going back, I'm a firm believer that more people will want to be in the office than they think. Because the fact of seeing you in person and having those discussions or when I'm in my office and having unexpected collisions and collaborations, I think that ultimately those people who are in the office will be more successful. Now, if you have a company that's all hybrid, that's one thing. But when you start, I mean, all all remote, but when you start to have a mixture of remote and in-person I think the people who are not in the office in the long run are going to be hurt by it. So that answer your question? Yes, I think so. The other piece is, okay, that's a, something you think about and you relate, but then what really gets you out of bed and going to that office instead of just going down the hall to your computer? 
there has to be more than just that collaboration. There's something, there's got to be a, a vibe or something or some attraction. Now, the amenities are one thing. What else is going to, I mean, is it some, some, I mean, the, the young people want to collaborate, but you, you get about 20 of them in a room and they're on their phones all the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe. What is it going to bring them together, you know, physically? It's a really good point that you raised, John, and it has to be more purposeful and strategic. And one of the things that you had also asked me about was kind of how has our business changed? Yes. It's actually pivoted from less transactional to more consultative. And at the end of the day, there may be a transaction or there may not be. But the role of that workplace thinking on how you use that office is so critical. And we have now a really large and getting bigger each day workplace division. I don't show up for any meeting, whether it's an initial meeting or once we've been hired, without those people by my side. And until we get through the process of having them evaluate how people are working and what they need and how that influences how space should be built and or reconfigured, that's going to be the game changers. And people want, we recognize there's not one size fits all, that you're not going to go in an office and sit there by yourself in a closed office all day. We all have different needs through the day. And so I don't know that law firms would probably be the last ones that would ever go to an unassigned, but as they start to do surveys and figure out, you got to be in this many days a week to get your own dedicated space, you're going to see more of it because guess what? We've all learned how to work remotely or to come with our laptop. It's nice to have pictures, but do you really need to have that? So I think in the long run, that piece of it, that workplace evaluation, which is sort of the intersection of kind of real estate and psychology is changing how we all work. That also brings up what I brought up with my last guest, uh, Rob Ward, and I asked him, so are we, is the lease going to continue to be the main document that intersects the tenant and the landlord, or are we going to go the mode of the WeWorks world where we have license agreements and offering ultimate flexibility to the tenant? to come and go as they please. They don't have to be in the office. They can month-to-month lease or month-to-month obligate themselves. Will the lease go away? No. The The lease is not going away. Okay. Yet. There's still (laughs) going to be a rise of those licensing things. And and, And I think about, for example... Car has done with car properties with the wave or what Tishman's done with their right. studio. Right. People who are creating their own co working spaces. Right. Like and so I thought that before COVID, things were so frothy and you looked at WeWork and the rest of it, how it would continue. And then during those dark days, we didn't think any of those would make it through. But now people are looking for third spaces. So whether the landlords are doing it or they're doing management agreements, we just did a, a transaction with a company called Daybase. We're doing it in New York, but hopefully elsewhere, where they're, where they're coming into residential buildings. We deal with Avalon Bay, where they're taking five to 8,000 feet, and their solution is mostly furniture. There's not a, a lot of build-out. They are doing a lease. But I think that you're going to find more tenants are looking for, depending on their size, shorter-term flexibility and spec suites. Spec suites are really, I just did a, another lease for a tenant looking for spec suites. They're getting far more in a build-out than they would. They don't have to do a long-term lease. They're typically going to be built with more modern materials, all glass and flexible, and they don't have to, to do as much. But they don't have the flexibility. They don't get the, the options. They, as is, you know, it's almost like running an apartment. You know, this is what you get. I get them modified, though. 
<laughs> they are being modified, okay. but not as much. Like if you come right. in and you want to like completely rebuild it, but they try to come up with something that they think will appeal to a, to sure. a broad population. But, but for example, one of them was a group uh, association I was doing on lease for downtown. They were taking 13,000 feet on the top floor of an office building, trophy space all the way, ready to be signed March 16th of 20. And they called and said, you know what? There's all this stuff going on with this virus. Let's pull back for a little bit. Long story short, they sat for a year and then they went and did a lease on a spec suite for 8,300 feet for 10 years with termination rights, which are key. I mean, that's, that's the other thing that's come out of it. We are in a tenant market that I don't see going away, maybe for really large blocks of space. But in general, this is really a tenant-centric market. We're seeing in Tyson's right now in one of the transactions I'm doing, we're getting six years of free parking. This isn't a very high-end building. We haven't seen that. Now, you know, the, the learners in the Mace, which is the world, will probably never do that. Maybe you get a little bit. But in general, they're fighting over tenancies. This is, this is 12,000 square feet. The, the kind of economics we're seeing, if you are a tenant that can make a commitment long term, it's an amazing time to do, a, to do a new lease or to restructure your lease or to think about what you might need to do. Well, the other thing is the big companies are now looking at owning real estate as opposed to leasing, too. So Amazon, for instance, HQ2, sure. that entire is all owned. Mm-hmm. So JBG is just doing build a suit of the feet developer for them. They'll sell the dirt, mm-hmm. do that. And it seems to me that Apple is starting to do that. I think they're doing it down in Raleigh, Durham. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing as a large national representative of larger tenants? What you, what, what we're, not, we're not seeing as much. I think those are those are exclusions, extraordinary, and not what you're going to see. You know, you talked about technology companies and that they're not going back to the office. But when you look, and we have a lot of this the stats because I have really wonderful research department. Yeah, they're really good. When you look at the leases that were done in the last year with Microsoft and with Facebook and with Google, particularly in this toll road quarter, they're taking down a lot of space. So they may be talking about giving people flexibility. Long-term leases? Long-term leases big long-term leases. So people are still doing things, but they're thinking about it differently. And they're coming at it where they're, they're addressing that workplace piece up front to try to figure out what they need. The other thing is we are much more strategic. We, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about our migration to being acquired by Savills is what we have in terms of the resources. So we have a whole division that does workforce that really looks at where are people coming from and how do you evaluate that? Where should you be so you can draw the best talent and understanding all of that? And then we do that in conjunction, not in isolation with our workplace. So that will help us figure out how much space they need and where they should be. And so it's really taking a much more strategic and scientific and consultative approach to how we do it. We're not just space finders. That's at the end of the day after we've done all of this planning. So what are the key, you know, points now? I mean, I know there's a lot of analysis to, you know, exact location relative to the the workforce that's available to them. What other aspects do you look at other than just that aspect when you're looking at a tenant? It used to be that the leaders of the company, oh, that's five minutes from my my home. You know, that was kind of the main driver before, or one of them, certainly. What we do is it's, it's, to your point, much more holistic, organic, and looking at everything. We use a lot of mapping software. We have an amazing division that does mapping GIS systems that will look at where their employees are, 
Or for, for example, I have a, a graphics client that's looking for 60,000 square feet of warehouse space, of which 10,000 will be office for their production multimedia. They wanted maps that showed where all their customers were and where all of their employees were and that they want to be at that intersection. And the, and the head of the whole company is across the river further away. And he said, we need to be where my people are. And I think that we, we haven't even discussed this today, but this potential great resignation isn't just potential, it's real. And so it's putting employees in the driver's seat. And so they, they are, if they are going to be in the office, um, particularly for something like that, where you have to be, they need to, they're going to want to be in a place where they can get com- employees to want to come there. And so that's really shaping it. It's not just where the, where the CEO is. They really have to think about the future where they're going to get their employees. So relationships are key to, to our industry. Talk about some of your client relationships, David, uh, and how they impacted your career. And how have you, how have you retained your relationships for so long? Well, the very first client I had when I came out back in the private practice in 1968 was a very big automobile dealer. And uh, he had been referred to me by Automobile dealer who I was friendly with in the town Herndon. And early on, he came to me with a problem. And uh, it was more of a business question than it was a legal question. And then I said, what's his name? I said, Joe, that's a business question. He said, I don't care whether it's a business question or legal question. You're going to get paid regardless. So please answer the question. And I had, of course, kind of protect the firm because if I give him pure business advice and he takes that business advice and it turns sour, wow, it turns sour on the firm. We might have some liability, etc. So I always had to walk that line extremely carefully. And but so many of my clients became very close personal friends, not just because they were clients, but because I liked them. I mean, there were some of them that were good clients who I didn't like, and I didn't have any interest in being their friend. I mean, I wasn't going to be their enemy, but I wasn't going to do what they wanted me to do on a social level. And as far as the firm's concerned, we have always had a principle that I'm sure every firm says it, but I think we really mean it. Sure, others do too. The clients first, second, and third, and you've heard that thousands of times over your career. And you really have to, you have to do that right. You have to be ethical to the nth degree. Even if you didn't have rules of ethics, you gotta do the right thing. And I remember I'm not sure where it was, but a judge who was the chief judge of the circuit court in Fairfax was speaking maybe to the Bar Association or something like that. And Dexter and I were in that room. And Judge Jamborski said, you know, you really have to have confidence in the lawyers who are presenting your case. He said, if Dexter Oden and or David walked into my courtroom and said, it is 8 o'clock in the morning, and the sun is shining bright, even if it was 12 o'clock at night and it's dark, <laughs> I will accept anything they say. 
Now, it's kind of hard to do any better, any better than that. And uh, so we, we really treat our clients right. Our buildings are fair, and that our work is good, and we really take we take seriously anything they want to try to do as long as it's right. So I'm guessing on the flip side, you've had clients come to you and say, So David, would you consider doing this for me? And you've had to say, just can't cross that line. Have you said that a few times? That's where I get it from. This is how I see the world. So now she gets starved to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you try not to starve to death so you don't get yourself in the position where you have to do things that you, you shouldn't do and that you don't want to do. Your relationships went. Talk about some of your key relationships over time. You know, I spent so many years doing law firms, many, many years doing a lot of law firm work, and I still do. And that's been one of my passions and, of course, an outgrowth of, of being part of this and growing up with it, osmosis with my father. I think for me, one of the things that's really helped me from a client standpoint is I, I stay in touch. It's not a one and done. I remind my clients that when the lease is signed, it doesn't mean I go away. Actually, I remind them that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going to bill them by the hour. They should call me throughout the process. They should call me or send me the, the operating expense tax statements every year. And so to me, that the thing that I'm most proud of is, is the repeat business and that those sorts of opportunities. Or then when my client leaves where they're going, that the first call they make is, guess what? I've moved over to this group and their lease is coming up and, and will you come see me? And to me, I don't think that there's anything better than that. They are my referral sources. And, and my dad mentioned that fact that I'm, I am definitely networked. But part of it goes back to just being somebody who is, like we talked about good for their word, but I'm also, this is who I am. And there's no pretense. And I follow through. I do what I say I'm going to do. And I think that's really, really important. So I think that authenticity um, comes through. So I'm not really naming a lot of names there. I mentioned, I noticed that. But I, I will I will mention one, which is that I, that we've done a long-term, I've worked with them for 25 years, is like the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And so we've done, you know, think tanks and, and whatnot. But the law firms, you know, so many, we've done build-a-suits for like William Small and Richmond and still handle all of their work. I'm just finishing up a lease with Herschler. So we're doing work um, with lots of, the, lots of them over time and repeat business. And to me, that's what makes me the happiest. I laugh when they say, oh my gosh, I keep getting calls from all these brokers. I said, well, the easiest thing to tell them is that you use Wendy because I'm fortunate there are no other Wendy's in brokerage. And so they know who that is. And they, they recognize, particularly because I've lasted as long as I have, that you know, I, sure. I've, got, I've got the resume behind me and I've got the team behind me, which I think is so important because it's, first of all, it's really hard to do alone. And I love doing it with others because we just sit there and brainstorm and strategize and it, and it makes it fun. It makes it worthwhile getting out of bed. Do you have any developer looked across to you and said, would you come and work for me? Some have, although I've told them that they probably couldn't afford me. I'm actually very close with so many. Actually, from his Renato days, Mitchell Shear is a very close friend and cycling buddy. I, I got very close with Oliver Carr when we did the well lease. And Ray Ritchie is, I mean, friend to everybody. I just adore Ray. And so I've always felt that staying at Savills worked for me because it gave me flexibility. We haven't really touched on it much, but 
I raised two kids while I was doing this, um, married to a wonderful man who was very supportive of this, plus did an inordinate amount of community service as well as industry-related organizations. And Studley let me do what I want. I say Studley because it was back in the Studley days. I didn't come in on Fridays. And for many years when my kids were younger, I worked, but I wasn't there late at night. I was just trying to figure out how to manage raising the family and, and keep my finger um, in the real estate world. When Savills came in to buy Studley, did that have any impact on your business at all? I think it only improved it. The only problem people have is they don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> and they actually did a pronounce it. They did a big campaign on, is it Savillas or whatever? It's Savills. But I feel that what we have in terms of our global reach, how we've expanded in the U.S. as well as the different service lines that we never had before. We acquired a huge project management firm two years ago called Macro that does huge projects. We have this workforce division. We have a proprietary data visualization tool. We have so many different resources than we've ever had, plus opportunities to collaborate with my compatriots, both locally and um, overseas, which I'm finding very rewarding. Another area I could go down and probably take a long time, but I'll keep it up. If you can keep it at the executive level, I'd appreciate that. That's the ESG mm-hmm. movement, which sure. is obviously huge. It is. So I have found ESG is not new. However, it's getting more attention than it ever has, and rightly so. And it kind of comes on the heels of, of my focus on wellness. And I've, I joke because I've been given a hashtag wellness with Wendy. I'm not sure what they're going to give me for ESG, but I've been the, the brokerage face within my company and actually within the industry in the DC area of understanding the role of that. And now my next one, my new 2.0 is exactly the same sort of thing. We've had clients ask us, association, for example, what buildings are we looking at that are reporting on ESG and what is that? Well, part of that goes back to education and getting that information out there. And even if somebody's not publicly held, they may still report on ESG, or even if they don't report on it, how do you tease out what those metrics are? And I know that there's been some discussion about whether if you are in a building that has that, they can charge higher rents. Right now, they're just lucky to get rents if they have vacancy. So, but I do think we're going to see more and more of it because corporate America is is being evaluated on that. And so now our part is to help people understand how we look at buildings through that lens. I was with an international investor uh, this week, and he's told me he raises capital for all over the world, foreign countries. And he said now that every pension fund that he has been dealt with internationally, this is the clean, the, the pure lens they're looking through now is mm-hmm. the ESG lens mm-hmm. for investing. So just about every real estate owner is going to have to be sensitive to it now going forward. Yep. And even if they don't report on it, or they're not required to because they're not publicly held, you're starting to see more and more start to do it. Well, they can't raise capital without. Exactly. And so what we have to do and what I'm focused on within my company is making sure that we understand what's it about. And it goes back to my, my constant statement, what's it about and why should you care? So when we have clients that are saying, well, what are, how are we able to reduce our carbon footprint? Our clients are asking us, our prospective hires are asking us. This is becoming an enormous issue and, and it's important. And we're at a, at a, at a pivotal time in, in the real estate market, in the investment market, all of it's kind of funneling up to focusing on that. And so I'm actually um, really excited about seeing how we 
change our processes, how we look at buildings differently from my standpoint in terms of even site identification, how people are thinking about it, how it's going to affect their ability to sell a building. So you're on the tenant side, but I've asked landlords this question before. If you own, you know, class B and C office buildings in downtown Washington with mid-block locations, let's say, what would your strategy be today? What would you advise somebody to think about uh, with that kind of a situation? Repurposing. Downtown is, when you give that example right now, um, we're seeing a lot of things that are considering going for, for multifamily that wouldn't have before. And if they're creative and they can figure out a way to do that, it might be a little harder with some of the mid-block or create more of an open plan kind of flex operation. The, the flex model, and when we say flex, you know, I used to think of flex as, as the warehouse flex. Right. Flex office right. is different. And I think it's all about thinking about ways of, of repurposing. And that's really where... So what examples have you seen or are starting to see? Uh, companies like Sonder. Right. Sonder's coming in there and they're really smart people and they're figuring out how to repurpose office buildings, whether it's all or part. And I think that we're going to see a lot more of that. People are looking for flexibility in their housing and more short term, just like with the office. A lot of people want that flexibility, but they also want a model that is um, consistent. They know what they're getting market by market. Interesting. I'm going to bring up a specific building downtown that uh, I worked on for a little while because we were looking at converting it from an office to a residential use. But it was built originally in 1904 as a, as a, as a rooming house, and then it was converted to an office building, 1737 H Street, mm-hmm. which is an older building. It's a historic building. Mm-hmm. And it was a men's rooming house originally, and then converted to an office building. And then my client, Mike Balaban, who was a guest of mine, looking at converting that back to a residential use. That's on the south side. North side. Think. It's on the north side of H Street. Okay. Just, just east. Oh, I know where that is, right? Yeah. Older building, and actually, uh, Brown Advisory used to be in there, and they were my broker at the time. So, but you know, that's an unusual building because of its age and what its original purpose was. But there's these just box buildings that are in the middle of the block, and the footprint is such that it doesn't lay out well for residential, and there's no window line. So, that's the other issue. Mm hmm. So it's, it's going to be challenging, it seems to me. So it seems there's going to have to be some creative thinking going on in downtown Washington for the school Absolutely. And, and fortunately, we have a, a marketplace that's filled with some really great architects that are thinking about some really innovative approaches. And, and if you're doing things that, again, that are more open plan, where light can flow in, because light's a, a critical thing of making people want to be indoors. So, so you've been both been very active in the community, including board memberships, real estate organizations, leadership. You participate in this to keep yourself visible for work or do you find personal satisfaction or both? And I'll ask both of you the question. I find both. I mean, some of the organizations have <coughs> launched, I never thought of that business, uh, becoming the president of the, uh, the temple. That was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, I'm a mason, and I was the master of my lodge in 1975. I didn't go in there for business. I went in there because I knew people, thought it was a good organization. Now, to say that you don't have something in the back of your mind that 
one day something may not happen. You know, that's not accurate. I mean, sure, you're hoping somebody has a problem that they would come to you, but you don't resent it, and you're not out there just to drum up business. I've never tried to drum up business. I mean, just been lucky. Business is coming. And I'm not saying it's because we're, you know, we're so good and we're so ethical, but we are, and that's, that's the highlight of it. Well, as my first guest at Gary Rappaport said, it's not being necessarily a good business person, it's being a good person. And that really is the bottom line. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. So for myself, right out of college, I got involved with an organization in Northwest Washington called Iona Senior Services. And I started volunteering to visit a shut-in senior. And I laughed because I looked back. I called him and said, well, that's great. I'll keep doing that. But do you need more help? I had so much free time, which nowadays I would, would covet that. And started doing fundraising. I joined their board. And before I knew it, I became a protege of, of Dick England. And he taught me how to fundraise. And we raised $10 million for a new building. Wow. So I learned a lot. I had no formal training in that. And then I did Leadership Washington. And then I did get involved with the real estate group, which was actually one of the best things I ever did in my career, which I aged out of quite a while ago. But I was on the board of the real estate group with Brian Coulter and others. And I met more people early in my career, which is how business gets done. So I did that. But I also had a lot of different things in the community I did. So I didn't do it for business. Those sorts of things like real estate group, of course you do for that. But but the other community things I did because it, it felt good. I loved doing for others. I got very active with a women's foundation that funds social change to benefit women and girls. I was on the board of crew for um, several years, which I wish I had done earlier in my career. That's, that's kind of counsel that I give to younger women is I, I wish I had gotten involved earlier because I met so many amazing women like Betsy Klarman and Wendy White and others that just were all about coming together and helping us be better. And that has just been phenomenal. Now I'm really active with Higher Achievement Program that, that Jay Epstein and Mitch Mitchell got me involved with. And so I, and I love that when you think about the, the kids in our community, that is something that's so important. And I'm also pretty active with the Roundhouse Theater. I'm the co-chair of their Business Advisory Council and really enjoying doing that. So my, my involvements are all over and I just kind of connect the dots and People probably may wince when they hear from me because they probably know I'm looking to get them involved with something. Raise money or Raise whatever. money but, or raise awareness. I think that's part yeah. of it. I want to raise awareness and, and help others. And so that's what's been so nice about Savills. This week we had the March of Dimes Heroines Award, and I've been involved with that. I'm on their leadership committee. And I mean, when you think about things like the March of Dimes, it impacts all of us. Whether we had children who are premature, we know people that did. And so that sort of stuff tugs at my heart. And, and Stubbley always gave me flexibility to pursue that. When you said, well, how come you didn't go to a developer somewhere else? They gave me flexibility with that. And they gave me flexibility with my career in terms of raising a family. So I've just been, I'm very loyal. loyal. I'm really loyal. And I'm having fun. I mean, I love the people I work with, which That's makes great. it worthwhile. That's great. That's awesome. One of my prior podcasts, yes, Richard Lake. I, I know. I brought Richard in to Iona. You did? I did. Okay. Oh, yeah, because I get to replace yourself. He's very proud of that relationship. He he, they did they did great work, and now they just brought my friend Patty Ernest, who is their wow. CIO, yeah. to be on the board too. And so I just love bringing people together to solve problems in our community. And when they were building the building next door, I immediately called the executive director, I'm like we need to get them involved. You know, so that's where I think I'm good. Whether it's 
in my day job or in my community work to connect the dots and problem solve. So over your careers, what have been the most surprising events or transactions you participated in? One of the most surprising was about 38 years ago, we bought a pretty big piece of ground in Prince William County that was basically in the middle of nowhere. And over the years, Prince William Parkway condemned roughly 50 acres of property. So we had 106 acres on this side, 40 acres on that side. And then George Mason University came next to our 106 acres. And finally, a month ago, we sold it for a very, very big price. 38 years. 38 years. And we still have the 40 acres. Wow. Not exciting. So it takes a lot of patience. I mean, not only hard work, but patience, when's the right time, and uh, we went through different iterations. With different so what did you do with that 38 years of land? I mean, what did that land just sit there for 38 years? It was just a land play? It was farmed. Farmed, okay. It was a, a land use. So that's what enabled us to be able to hold it that long, because I think the tax bill was around $100 a year, maybe $150, $200. Now, there's a catch-up. The catch-up is rollback taxes. So when we sold this, we had to pay rollback taxes for five years to what it would have been had it not been in land use. So we basically had to pay back four $500,000. But in the totality, it allowed us to carry that without having to go to our partners and say, hey, you need to pony up some money. In fact, there were times when we did need money because we had to get some engineers involved, et cetera, et cetera. But the three general partners, Dexter and myself, and one of our clients, we made loans to the uh, to the entity. They were enormous. So did you have any idea 38 years from now how this would play out? Well, Tell you, I took one of my senior partners out to look at this ground. <clears throat> and he said to me, You know, I had confidence in you. But I got to tell you, this is the ugliest piece of I've ever seen. And I said, You don't judge it on how ugly it is, you judge on what's to come. What's to come. And you've got to be patient with it because if you're not patient with it, uh, you're going to lose it, you're going to sell it too soon, and make a mistake. And uh, the price we got was just fabulous. Listeners, if you're listening, listen to that advice. It's <laughs> <laughs> very good. And you, Wendy? Well, it's funny. In, in preparation for today, it, it, call, it was time for a pause for a lot of reflection. And 35 years, is, there's a lot of different deals that I've done. But I thought that I would highlight one that was more recent that I thought was just kind of like it showed kind of the confluence of all of the things. I was on vacation in Morocco with my daughter and a friend, and we were in a very remote spot in the High Atlas Mountains, and you could only get Wi-Fi in one little corner of the hotel. And I was checking my email, and my friend said, oh, stop working. And I said, look, I'm a sole practitioner. If I want to check my email, I will. And I had gotten an email from a managing partner of a law firm that somebody who she did work for was putting out an RFP that was due the next day and she needed 
to have a broker that would be part of it. And um, did I have any experience in Arlington? And I said, yes. And so she put our name forth and the next day we were hired and I came home and in 11 months, we finished the deal and had it built out and it was for the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority. Mm -hmm. And they had to get off the grounds of Reagan so they could take down 35X and do the billion dollar expansion of the airport. So in our kickoff meeting, we did visioning session, which is something that's, that's a newer thing that we do all the time now. And we presented the market report and we went out and toured the next week and we found 75,000 square feet. We got it uh, negotiated, designed, permitted and built in 11 months from start to finish. And literally the day they moved out, they came with the wrecking ball and took down that terminal where the old U.S. air terminal was. Did the ground build suit then? No, they went to an existing building, um, Potomac Yard, and it was right across from the airport. We looked at everything in Crystal City and because that's really where they wanted to be, but they, they had waited a long time and they were out of time. And so they, they did build out space. We did a long-term lease for them. But to me, that was, that was one of the more exciting ones just because of, we got to come together. And when we saw that, that project could proceed, we felt really good. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about uh, you know, what your priorities are in life. Uh, about work, giving back, and family. David? Well, uh, we haven't been able to see much family in the last two years. We are going to California first time in two years over Thanksgiving to see the family out there. This transaction that we just closed in Prince William just ate up my life. I mean, it was day and night negotiations. Dealing with the dealing with the politicians, and you had to. You, you really had no choice. And but my goal now, I still want to practice law, so I don't want to give it up. But I, as new matters come in, I really want to get other people involved. I want them to become the the attorney for that client. But I want them to always tell me what's going on. Because so many of my friends over the years have also been clients. And when you're out socially with them and somebody else is handling their matter, they expect you to know what's going on. And sometimes our people tell me, and sometimes they don't. So I have to go down and find out, but that's all right. Do you enjoy mentoring? Yeah, I do enjoy mentoring. And particularly where they can take the ball and run with it. I've had two transactions, including this huge one, recently where this new fellow who's been around a little while really took the ball and ran with it and did a fabulous job. He'd keep me involved, he'd keep me ask questions and that's perfectly all right. But they're a great job for us and really our client. It's the only time we ever did a private placement and uh, we did it 38 years ago. And we, um, it was either friends, clients, for referral sources, and several of our attorneys in the firm wind up getting very significant checks, which makes me really thrilled because I remember in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, we were doing, we weren't doing private placements, but we were buying stuff, and we were giving our partners opportunities to participate. Well, come 91, 92, 
they all went down the drain. And there were some of them who were just so highly critical. You know, it was all our fault. Uh, and maybe some of it was because we shouldn't have been out buying some of the properties. But we couldn't control the economy and what was happening. And so now uh, there's only one guy who was so critical and he's gone. But he does have a fairly good chunk of this one. So I can't say I'm thrilled that he does. But, you know, it is what it is. I, I uh, like to be involved in helping other people. I have been involved in capital hospice. And about four or five years ago, they were seeking to build a new facility in Loudoun County. And I became very active, not only going out soliciting other people. And it's just interesting what you hear from some people. I remember a guy who was very, very well-to-do, and uh, we went out to talk to him, and he talked the biggest story I have ever heard. Like, he had to be a billionaire. So at the end of the day, my co-partner in it, we started, I wouldn't say pressing, but we wanted to get a commitment from him. He said, well, I can't give you a commitment. My wife has to make this decision. And the amount of money we got from him absolute pittance, but uh, the center's been up for maybe three or four years. The other day, I get the nicest email from one of our assistants who's been here for years and years, and she said that she, her husband had to go into the, to the Adler Center, and when she saw my wife's name and my name on either room or rooms, whatever, it just made her heart pound, and she felt so good which made me feel just terrific. I mean, that wasn't for purpose of business. That was to help other people. Hospice is a very special thing. I've seen it firsthand. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's amazing. That's all I can say about it. It is. So, Wendy, talk about your uh, so, priorities. Yeah, so my priority is family first. And I am fortunate that, you know, that the whole the motto about live to work or work to live. You know, I, I am working so that I can fund and do all the things I want from a philanthropic standpoint. We, I'm married to a wonderful man. It will be 28 years this year, Evan Block. And I married somebody who's far cooler than myself. He's very athletic. He was a hockey player, goalie, big skier, big, got me into cycling, small golfer, plays golf with my dad a bit, but we've had an amazing journey and we have two wonderful kids who are grown up. We have a daughter who's 24 who's going to go to Darden next fall who just escaped from Afghanistan, which is a whole nother story. The Taliban escorted her out. And we have a son who is a senior at Syracuse who, despite my dissuasion, has decided he wants to be a commercial real estate broker. So any of your listeners are looking to hire somebody, he will be graduating in May. But Aiden has really done amazing. And he's worked for CBRE the last two years and did one year with KLNB. And he's he really gets it. And I think that all those years of just kind of like I did with my dad of listening in the car, you know, he's listened to me in doing that. And so I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that he also all of a sudden realizes, you know, mom, mom's actually um, been doing pretty well. And so that that makes me really proud. And then we live in downtown Bethesda. I went across the river. When my husband and I were looking to move, we looked a little bit in Virginia, but growing up in Herndon and Reston, I knew I wanted to be inside the Beltway. And we ended up in downtown Bethesda. I'm actually across the street from Bill Collins, 
literally, and love where we are. We've got a very tight community. We all help each other raise our children. I'm an edge Edgemore. And we're actually technically edge less. It's Bradley, Bradley Hills, but we're part of the Edgemore district. And I'm, we're big cyclists. And the cycling group, we've got a women's group and a men's group and some smart men that ride with the women. And they meet in our driveway in the, in the warmer months, four times a year and four times a week. And so that cycling crowd is my lifeline. I've, I've developed lots of mantras associated with it, one of which is, I may be the caboose, but at least I'm on the train because I'm like very thoughtful, slow. Weekday mornings is 20 miles and then weekends can be, you I'm very, work. no, Tom Fulcher does in my office, but no, I don't do that. Yeah. So, but from, but I'm in Tyson's, so you wouldn't want to bike from Bethesda to no. Tyson's. So, but I'm a big cyclist and we, and we ski a lot. And so we ski out West and the kids all ski, of course, they're all better than me. But so that's, you know, I've kind of become an accidental athlete later in life because I never was athletic growing up. So, and, and following on my dad, I've actually started to play golf. So the crew really encouraged women to play golf. And so I started doing that. I'm not very good, but I've got clubs, clothes, shoes, and I've learned the rules and belong to a club. So it, it, it's made it fun. But that community is really key. And one of the things I, I don't know if I fully touched on is one of the main other reasons I've stayed in this business as long as I have is I have a really tight network of friends in the industry, but particularly women. And a lot of them are competitors, but for the most part, we're all looking to see each other do our best. And it's that community that I can rely on to run ideas off of and whatnot has been really transformative for me. in, in that's in all different disciplines. Not just all different. Programs. It's construction, architecture, development. That has really made a big difference. And I credit most of that starting with a woman named Amy Brendler, who used to be at Studley, and she went over to Tishman, and she started these women-only events where it would be a round table or it would be a dinner or eventually morphed into yeah. a trip because women, most of them had kids, could do just one night away. And then Jill Gabot, who was then at JBG, would say, well, I need to do a women's trip or then different people would. So women, for years, the guys were all doing these boondoggles and we weren't invited so now we have our own network and we hope that the market will come back and we get to start doing more of them because really getting to know a lot of these women has been phenomenal. And we're just so, there for each other. Wendy White and Linda Brandon both told me about the wind down. Which yeah. I don't know if you remember no, that, no. but yeah. they had, it's a special group that they've had for a long time. Well, I mean, early in my career, I had applied to Leadership Washington and I didn't get it the first time and I'm sort of, i forget it. And Linda called me and she goes, Wendy, you must... You must apply again. So, you know, I've had, I've had all of these amazing people supporting me, not just, not just women, people like Ray Ritchie, when I got an award from my own 15 years ago, would show up. He would just be there. And, you know, he has taught me more. We would actually write thank you notes and then a thank you note on a thank you note. And at what point does the thank you notes end? Because I'm kind of old school about that stuff. So he really is. I just communicated with him yesterday. He's going to speak at a session I'm putting on next month for my group, which I wanted to mention. I advertise every week. I have a group called Iconic Journey in CRE. And maybe your son will be interested in joining. I'm trying to recruit people from 22 to 40 years old. Oh, good. He'll be, in back, in, he'll be back in May. Yeah. No, I, I think that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you already mentioned your advice to your 25-year-old self. Do you have something else you want to a- a- amend that with? Um, as David as well. 
I, I think I mentioned that the other thing I wish I had done earlier was getting leadership at, at crew because that really would have helped me. I mean, I did it later in my career. And then things like Kriba and, and develop that robust network early. It's been phenomenal for me and I've been incredibly fortunate. But I think if I had had that earlier, it would have, would have really helped. David, your advice to your 25-year-old self, what would your advice be? I was thinking that. Got to make a living and I've got a kid. <laughs> you know, 25 years of age. You know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I know I want to practice law, and I know that I uh, still want to be doing real estate. I, I love it, uh, and said mostly we've been very, very fortunate. And, uh, I will add one thing, though, that you didn't add, and you mentioned it earlier, and that is, you know, that he wasn't as around when we were growing up, in part because he worked so much, but as a grandfather, he was at every sporting event, oh, every concert. I had two kids who played ice hockey. There were a lot of games. And uh, my dad was, and his wife were always front and center attending events. And you have been a phenomenal grandparent. And of course, we do have you on a pedestal. And it's like, oh, grandpa. I'm not knocking you off. They just know that grandpa's, you know, you, your, your reputation is, is enormous. All right, well, coming to my final question, this is one that I ask all my guests. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? This is not a dress rehearsal, this is your life. David, you have one? It's time to get back to the way things should be done. Great. Sounds like you both thought about it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, David and Wendy, thank you very thank much. You. This thank has you. been a, a wonderful discussion. It's great to have a father-daughter on for the first time. It's been great. Thank you, listeners. On to the next one. So we just listened to David Feldman and Wendy Feldman-Block, father-daughter combination. Interesting conversation about their respective backgrounds. David, of course, he's in his early 80s and he's had quite a career as a as an attorney in in Northern Virginia, but grew up in an interesting household there with his mother being a retailer and in Virginia, which was much more rural and nothing like it looks like today in Fairfax County growing up there. So it was interesting to hear that. Then he moved into the district when he was a young man and went to school at GW and both for undergrad and law school, and then moved back out to Reston before Reston was anything, really. It was just, you know, the one community. And then we heard about Wendy's career and her coming out of undergrad, not really knowing, and then interns at Studley and stays there for now over 30 years now with the, with the same organization. So an interesting story and a good relationship there between the two of them. And Interestingly, Wendy told me after the interview that she'd heard stories from her father she'd never heard before until we had that interview, which makes me feel good. <laughs> so, so as I usually do, I bring on my sidekick, Colin Madden. Colin, welcome. Hey, John. How are you? Thanks again for having me. Good. Um, good. What'd you think? Yeah, I thought another interesting one. I wanted to kind of get your your take on how it was interviewing a father-daughter duo. This was your first one. Did you learn anything or did you witness anything you hadn't seen in other podcasts where you're just seeing people talk about their parents? How was the experience for you? 
Well, when you think about multiple guests uh, that I've had in the past, I had brothers with the Collins brothers, mm-hmm. and that was an interesting dynamic as well. And then I had best friends with Fred, Fred Klein and, and Jay Epstein, and that was an interesting dynamic. Then I had three ladies on that were all in the marketing, so they had a common thread there. And you know, a father-daughter team is a unique relationship in many ways, but it's interesting. They And they admitted it. David didn't spend much time with, with Wendy growing up. She was pretty much on, you know, her mother and they were on their own. He, he worked really hard and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that generation, that's probably typical. The father didn't really pay as much attention to the family work. If he was a, an attorney for you know, the professional, the job came first for a lot of that generation. Mm-hmm. So didn't spend as much time as a youth. So I don't know how much influence she got from him with regard to going into the industry. Their relationship clearly has grown over the years. And, and in fact, Wendy's the one I had not met David before. And Wendy's the one that insisted, well, not insisted, but she encouraged me to invite him to, to join her to have a father-daughter relationship which i thought was really cool yeah it was interesting to hear the the dynamic and is is something like this more challenging for you when you have have to to balance the conversation between father daughter or more preparation or is it almost easier because you have more content yeah well it's two it's two careers Mm -hmm. they were long careers both of them so Mm -hmm. i mean wendy by doing that kind of give gave away part of her airtime quote unquote for, yeah, for her father, but I think she really, really loved it because she learned something about her dad. And you know, it's one of those things. If you're in a family environment and you're with your father, you're not going to ask the questions that I asked him, right? Normally, right? And that was what I think. That's why she loved it because she learned <laughs> something about her dad. Mm-hmm. It was unique, it's you know. A- I, I, which is an interesting perspective when you think about it. So what I tried to do is I, I, I asked them, I said, should I do this kind of in a ping pong method where I start thematically and ask each one of you something, mm-hmm. or do you want to just kind of expound, you know, one at a time about your whole life? Yeah. And they, they, they like the idea of going back and forth, which I thought was good. I, that's, I, I did that with Fred Klein and Jay Epstein, and I thought it was pretty effective actually mm-hmm. to do it that way. And I also did it with Bill and Paul Collins. Right. So I like to try to keep it conversational as much as possible. And I think it, 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 it accomplished that, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I definitely wanted to discuss wellness and healthy buildings. I think Wendy's really leading the charge to, to kind of communicate to the market that this is important. Healthy buildings are important. This is what tenants should be asking for, should be paying attention to. I think where I work, we're also equally paying attention to it, but there is, it's almost like a education issue where the market doesn't really know much about healthy buildings and the importance of air quality and stuff like that. So I think she's doing a great job of getting the message out that air quality is important. There are financial benefits to it and not sure if you read the book Healthy Buildings or not, but it's it's very much all about this. Like, uh, you know, the more CO two in your space, the less productive your workforce is, and you don't really see it hit the bottom line, but it absolutely does. And I think Wendy has been paying attention to this pri- probably prior to the pandemic, and it's become even more important. But 
I, I do feel like there's still this education gap of why air quality in healthy buildings are important and why tenants should care about it. But I feel like they're, most people are just stuck on wanting a fitness center instead. But it was great to hear Wendy kind of expound on her, why she cares about wellness and healthy buildings and some of her deals that were the first of its kind in the, in the industry pertaining to healthy buildings and lead platinum, stuff like that. Did you have any take on that or you want to? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously she, this is something that goes back pre pandemic. She's mm-hmm. had a, a passion for it. I think she has just a strong belief that tenants will sustain longer in, in space if the building is built appropriately from a wellness perspective, giving the opportunities for tenants to not only improve their health uh, through the fitness centers and all the amenities there, but to have clear, clean air. And she's, I think, it's one of the first brokers to have a wellness designation. I think they have a special thing for that. And I have a client who her focus is purely doing that on the residential side. So certainly the movement is there and, you know, obviously you had lead, lead, the lead movement for, yeah, um, you know, fitness of a building. Now this wellness thing takes it to another level, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, is great for the industry. And obviously the climate issue that everybody's concerned about is a good thing. Right. So, but I think the, 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 the point you made about the CO2 mix in the, in the office space increases production. That's mm-hmm. important because mm-hmm. most people can't afford to do that kind of air quality in their homes. So it's kind of an extra incentive to be there for that. Right. If, it's, yeah. if, it's, if it's advertised appropriately. Yeah, that's a good point. Wendy talked about how having like a marketing, finance, and accounting background are just super integral to the business. And then she also added writing into that. for. Some of your listeners who may be weak in some of those areas, do you recommend any sort of course or training or anything like that to beef up their experience on that? In our industry, uh, in real estate, I think there's three legs to the stool, as I've always said Mm -hmm. to all the mentees that I've had. And one is understanding analytics. So all the analytics of our industry, the financial and marketing and statistical things. Uh, you should know those. You should understand how to speak, how to present orally and in, written, in writing. As far as courses, I think, you know, even Toastmasters, some people do, mm-hmm. but just watching and listening to brokers and to present to, to people, taking notes on how they present, you know, what things they say about properties, what, you know, learning terminology and being able to communicate effectively is critical. Mm-hmm. And then reading a lot, just a lot of OMs, operating uh, offering memoranda, you know, market and market studies, appraisals, contracts. Just read, read, read. There's mm-hmm. so many documents in our industry, mm-hmm. leases, and I talk. I've always said, you know, you know, the, 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 the most fundamental document in the entire industry is the lease. So understand every word in that lease, you know, inside and out. And because it's an important thing. Right. So I think, you know, all those things, just study and read and understand terminology and then listen and watch very skilled presenters, how they are able to convince people to make decisions. 
Okay. Kind of on a similar topic of a skill set, you you all kind of discussed negotiating quite a bit. I thought her take that I never really thought about negotiating from a female perspective, but it does seem like inherently it's probably more difficult just because of culture. Did you did you recognize that as as a potential issue before or was that the first time hearing that? Oh, she kind of opened my eyes to that there is that cultural gap between men and women negotiating and how it, so, it may be typically more difficult to, to break into the, the discussion as a woman. I think that a woman has an advantage many, in many cases, mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. do. They bring what, like, what EQ into a conversation, which is often quite ignored by all men. Mm-hmm. So the, the emotional aspect of, of discussing, you know, in, in residential real estate, that's a very important part. That's why they're more residential real estate women right. than men, because that's an emotional decision at home as opposed to a business decision. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I, I was attracted to commercial real estate vis-a-vis residential, because I didn't want emotion to be part of the decision. I wanted it to be more of a, a factual, you know, intelligence decision and not as much emotional. Mm-hmm. But you can't take emotion away from any decision. I don't care what you're, it could be purely mathematical, but bottom line is decision to decision. And there's going to be risk either way. And risk has emotion to it. Mm-hmm. I don't care what you say. When everyone's making a decision, there are consequences. Yeah. And so <clears throat> in negotiations, you try to massage those 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 emotions as best as possible to, to get people to make decisions, get them to, to, to decide. Attorneys do it on the other side to protect them. So they bring up risks even more, more so. So David may have talked about that a little bit, but you know, as an attorney, you're always, no, wait a minute, hold on. Let's look at all the risks here before you make that decision. Whereas a broker is the other side of the coin saying, no, no, don't worry about that. Make that, you know, go take that, take that risk, go for it. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's where the incentives are. So where are your incentives? Mm-hmm. If you ask that question, the uh, incentives drive those decisions typically, right? And, and the negotiations. Yeah, I think if it's a Charlie Munger quote, like, if you want to get to the root of any problem, just follow incentives. <laughs> exactly. Wendy had a quote that I, I had never heard, but really liked that like a career is a jungle gym, not a ladder. And then she said that Savile's allowed her to kind of approach her career this way and she could reduce her workload to raise a family and then increase it once they're out of the house. Do you think that's typical in the industry, both now and probably, that was probably what, 10, 15 years ago for her? It really depends on the company. You know, it's interesting that a brokerage firm like that, obviously she was at Studley before and they were acquired. Studley was much closer held. Savills is an international company. And, you know, I don't know if she'd say the exact same thing in her life if, if Savills was there because they had more systems in place, whereas Studley was more of a family, small, very small, you know, culture. And they allowed for a lot of flexibility. I mean, a brokerage firm, I mean, if you're a straight commission, you eat what you kill. You could, you don't have to work, you can work 10% of the time mm-hmm. and make a lot of money if you're very good at what you do. If you if you go to only a few meetings, but those meetings are extraordinarily effective. And you get something negotiated and done without taking a lot of time and energy doing it. Mm-hmm. You could be very successful as a broker, right? 
you don't have to put the time in, but there is tremendous risk. Obviously the deal won't close or the lease won't get signed or somebody makes a decision the wrong way. So obviously tremendous risk. I'm sure luck played a lot to do with it for her Mm -hmm. in many ways, but she obviously worked very hard and had a very interest in, in doing when she was, and she stepped aside. Her husband was very supportive, apparently that helped. So I agree with that analogy of jungle gym and for women in the business. And it really depends on where you're employed mm-hmm. and who you work for and with. Mm-hmm. And I think now and now is now because of the, you know, the recent social issues and, and of course the movements today, if you're an employer, flexibility is very important when you have women employees mm-hmm. because of <laughs> child rearing and, you know, all the competitive. And that was emphasized dramatically during the pandemic. So I think it's critical that, you know, that that is allowed in the workplace as much as possible. Right. So companies have to adapt to that if they haven't already. They both discussed all the kind of groups and networking groups they've been in. And they both also said that a lot of them, they're not doing it for a business, a gain for business, but more just like to meet people, learn more. I believe David said he's in Freemason Society, if I'm not mistaken. And I actually read the the Mental Models, the third edition, and it kind of brought the mental model of surface area to me. And it's as a model, surface area is about recognizing when increasing our exposure will help us and when it will cause us problems. So basically, like if you increase your surface area, the the chance of more interactions and network effects increases. Yes. How do you know when you're kind of spread too thin? Because obviously being in a bunch of groups, you will increase the opportunity for a reaction, but also being in too many groups, you might just be spread thin and not really get much value out of it. How do you balance that? Well, it's a, it's a priorities thing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, every day you have priorities. So I think you have just to kind of look at your priorities and, and that changes over time. Mm-hmm. And so it depends on what you see at the moment, what needs to t- get taken care of, and what do you see as the opportunity. So as a young person, you, you might want to spread yourself somewhat thin, but then again, your job is really important to really learn it and understand it. But you're also want, trying to keep your network alive and growing mm-hmm. and learning and meeting more people. So I think it's 50-50, and then at a certain point, you've got to really devote. If you get really engrossed in some project, you've got to devote 75-80% of your time to that. Mm-hmm. And then you know, once you get up to a certain level of expertise, then you can diversify your time a little bit more and expand your network. Mm-hmm. So it's a balance. It's one of those balances that I've had to do my entire career. I tend to be a little more engaged in outside activities than a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I've been an an intermediary for most of my career. As an intermediary, that's important. You know, so for Wendy, getting involved in a lot of different organizations is important because that gets her more exposure, Mm -hmm. more opportunity to meet potential clients, et cetera. Whereas if you're a developer or if you own real estate or if you're a if you're an attorney, network's important, but you know, I think David talked, you don't want to be out there marketing. In fact, I think he was told early on that, you know, marketing in, in law was really not not appropriate. Right. 
So, you know, that's why it was interesting to hear the, the difference between their careers where mm-hmm. her job was to market <laughs> right, know, and his was to kind of avoid it. But for young people out there, I think that, you know, you want to be networked to a point. You don't want to go take a new job every six months, though, and do that unless mm-hmm. circumstances aren't good. You want to find a good balance between getting your work done, staying very focused on your job, but also keeping your network alive and active mm-hmm. and meeting meeting people. So mm-hmm. it's a balance. Well, I think that was all the, the topics I had written down to discuss. Is there anything I missed that you wanted to reiterate or, you know? Go into. No, I, I will just say that David, his voice is a little weak. I'm hoping that audio will, when we get it finalized, will be a little bit better. He had had a, a health issue happen to him a little bit before, but he was in great spirits and that was good. And Wendy was really excited about it. Mm-hmm. So, and they're solid people. David just closed perhaps the largest deal he's ever done just like within a month before of a property that he hold, held for 38 years so mm. of his own so he was really happy about that and wendy was proud for him for that so it was kind of cool it was fun yeah. enjoyed it and i think they enjoyed it as well they both came back to me with uh, a, a lot of pleasure afterward so mm-hmm. so i wanted to finalize our discussion here and in, in two weeks or you know on december 13th We've got an event. Hopefully, most of the listeners will be interested in joining us for five icons in the D.C. area that will be in a virtual Zoom conversation. If you are between 20 and 44 and not a member of the Iconic Journey in CRE, my cohort with Colin and I coordinate, we'd love to have you join us. Write me at john at coenterprises.com if you're interested, and I'll we'll have take a half hour or so to make give me an introduction. And then if you're not, if you're older than that, then please join us on the 13th. There's a registration. If you look up my, my LinkedIn account, it's uh, the registration is out there. If you're interested, you write me at my email and I'll send you a registration link to it. It's $25 to see Ray Ritchie, Tom Bazzuto, Gary Rappaport, Matt Kelly and uh, Sadvi's uh, Subramanian join us for a, a forecast for 2022 and a kind of a reflection on 2021 and the pandemic on their various real estate markets that they've been involved in. So it should be an engaging hour and a half conversation. There'll be Q&A at the end as well. So I hope you join us for that. And then I'll have another uh, podcast episode in about uh, two weeks or so. So look forward to that. And thank you for joining us today.